Welcome back to Talking Guitar, brought to you by the North American Guitar in Nashville, Tennessee. Lindsay here, and today I'm excited to finally release my massive winding chat with the one and only Grit Laskin, in person from his workshop up in Toronto. I had the delightful task of going up to visit him for a day to pick up one of our clients' guitars, and he was kind enough to take a few hours out of his day to show me his workshop, let me take photos, and get deep into the weeds on his history, projects, and inspirations. You likely already know Grit for his stunning inlay work, incredible craftsmanship, and his innovative and influential arm bevel and soundport designs. But maybe you don't yet know about his time with John Larrave, or his bands and his many albums, or the record label that he started to promote niche folk musicians, or the music camp that he and his wife ran, or about the Group of Seven project and all the special causes that he builds for. The TLDR of this chat is that Grit is an incredibly inspired, busy, community-focused guy, and at the heart of everything he does is music and connection. In addition to being live and in person, I've dropped loads of photos in throughout our chat, so this is a great one to catch on YouTube if you're not there already. Or you can also visit our blog to see the collection, and links will be in the show notes. Now, enjoy my chat with Grit Laskin. so much for welcoming me here into your workshop. This is such an exciting experience. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yes. I think it's safe to say that our whole audience knows who you are, knows at least something about you because your influence has been so so huge and even if they only know that you know you're responsible for the Alaskan style bevel or the sound mm. port, they've come in contact with your work in some way. Um, but I'll be sure to rattle off lots of your other accomplishments in the, the official podcast intro because you've done so many amazing things. Okay, well, I won't complain. All right, okay. <laughs> but um, I think anybody just by looking at or playing just one of your guitars can tell that there's really, you're an uncommon person. You really pull mm-hmm. in a lot of different influences and disciplines and skill sets. Hmm. I mean, because it's, it's not just the guitar, it's the inlay work and everything. So I am so excited to talk more about your musical influences and oh. just your whole past. So, sure, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have no secrets. So <laughs> any, anything you want to know. Okay. Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to know, because uh, as, I, as I told you earlier, I discovered your, your collection of albums on Spotify, oh. which I was so excited because we, I think we probably share a lot of the same influences. Obviously, I knew huh. that you, you love Peggy Seeger because of that guitar last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I want to know more about, um, especially your instrumental influences. Who, who got you excited to start playing? Ah, that's interesting. Okay. Well, as a kid... You know, I started playing guitar when I was nine years old, mm-hmm. you know, and my parents sent me to lessons to learn the Mel Bay method mm-hmm. until that bored me to tears and I stopped playing and for a couple of years. And then a friend taught me both how to finger pick mm-hmm. and how to learn things off a record, how to listen and understand that when you're hearing it that way, that's telling you they're not in first position anymore. Mm-hmm. They're playing a G in second position or third. Try it until the sound matches, you know? And that's how I learned, you know, Paul Simon songs off the record or, or Joni Mitchell G tunings or mm-hmm. whatever it was at that time. That's how I did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it never stopped. Yeah. So I would then go to the library and I was poking through books of photographs of folkies by David Garr, mm-hmm. G-A-H-R. He was the guy in the 60s who photographed everybody at festivals. Okay. And there's a picture of, um, oh, names when I need them, from the birds, uh, Roger McGinn. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's underneath the caption, it said, Roger McGinn studied 
at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music. And I thought, I have found my post-secondary education. <laughs> so I go to the guidance counselor, you know, and she's got her big binder of all post-secondary, and she's looking and she can't find this anywhere. So I wrote them a little note. I just put Old Town School of Folk Music, Chicago, USA, <laughs> and it got there. And I got a note back saying, thank you for your interest, but we're just, you know, we teach lessons and we put on concerts. We're not a post-secondary education. Right. So I couldn't go, but I've never forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about, hmm, what will I do? I saw on the back of Bruce Coburn's first album that I had bought, at the back of his record, early days before people always credited everybody who did everything, but he happened to mention the studio. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, Eastern Sound Studio in Toronto. Hmm. I looked it up. Uh, like, you, there was no internet at that time, but I did some research and I you know, went to the library and found some articles about them. Oh, they're the only 24 track in the studio in the city. And they had three studio rooms. Maybe they have room for somebody. I thought, maybe that's what I want to do, mm -hmm. engineering. I hitchhiked to Toronto, got a job as a gopher at this studio. And I was 17, came back, told them I've quit school and see ya. Of course, they freaked out, mm -hmm. and they exacted a promise that if this doesn't work out, I will go back to university, and I said yes. Well, I was there six months, and I was being overworked, and literally it was setting up and tearing down all studios, um, doing all the dubbing of, of the ads, uh, the musical ads, which is mostly what they did there, mm -hmm. and, and big dubbing machines, quarter-inch tape. So you would take the master and you would run six dubbers that would copy it, yeah. and then you'd have to check that uh -huh. it didn't leave it blank, put them in envelopes, and you'd, do, you'd make 150 of them that would then be mailed out to all the radio stations. Mm -hmm. That's how they got the ads in the old days, right? And, and I would do that, and then I would also run the 35 millimeter projector when they were doing sync sound for films. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was doing all of that. Mm -hmm. I was burning out. I went there for the music. I'm mostly seeing ad executives, mostly, not mm -hmm. entirely. Met some musicians. Um, and so I quit, was just playing music for a couple of months, living on a friend's couch, <laughs> when I saw a Larivee guitar at the Toronto Folklore Center, which was a music store lesson place. And, uh, and Is it still around? Uh, no, no. no. Um, and, uh, but it was for decades. Um, and it was started actually by a, an American from New York okay. who used to play music in Washington Square during mm -hmm. the 60s folk boom, came up here, and like Izzy Young, he wanted to start a folklore center. Mm. So he was an expat. Anyway, um, he did, and uh, that's where I saw a Larvae guitar, and to this day I can remember playing it and, and playing it and looking down at the headstock veneer and the mahogany of the neck and thinking, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing a glue line. Mm -hmm. How is that done? How is that even humanly possible? That one piece of wood can stop and another one starts. Next yeah. thing I know, I'm heading to the Mariposa Folk Festival on the Toronto Islands, and John Larivee is showing off his wares in the craft section for the first time. Wow. And I meet John, this scruffy, hairy kid, you know, 17 years old. Would you be willing to take me on as, a, as an apprentice? And he said, well, you know, this is days before climate control. He said, when I start up again late September, past the humid oh, weather, because yeah, okay. you can't really assemble anything right. in the humidity, um, come on by and we'll give it a try. After three months, if it's not working out, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. And it did work out. Yeah. And at the time, 
a guy named Sergei de Young, mm -hmm. Serge we call him, uh, was hanging out in John's basement, whereas he was building in the basement of his suburban home, and just drinking beer and watching him work. And I don't know what Serge was doing at the time, but he was young <laughs> too. And then John, I met John just as he was renting his first workshop mm -hmm. and setting it up that summer. So I came by in September, Serge was there and me, and he was splitting the shop. This is probably more information than you need. I apologize. No, no, I, I, but I love But he's splitting the shop with the Toronto Folklore Center, who he'd gotten to know, and they wanted a place for the repairs to happen. So they brought up a guy from Mossman Guitars to half do the repairs, half time work for John, and there was Serge, and there was me. Mm -hmm. In two months, the guy who came up from, from Mossman, all he did was smoke his pipe all day and, and talk. And, and got almost nothing done. John said, I can't work with you. And Serge, at that point, left to work with an experimental classical guitar maker elsewhere in Ontario. Oh, okay. And he's actually the first person to do lattice bracing on classicals. Oh, that's it, right. It, it wasn't, uh, like, what's his name from, from Australia? It oh, was okay. this guy. And when I was an apprentice with John, mm -hmm. we would drive out and visit with him, and I'd see what he was doing. And that's because in his professional career, he was an airline engineer, an aircraft engineer. Wow. So he was using the structure that supported wings of small aircraft. Mm -hmm. And he thought, that's stronger. Why don't I try doing that? Yeah. Anyway, so that was a sidebar. So Serge went to work with him. And I remember uh, John was going out with Wendy at the time, just getting to know her. They were dating. And he brought Wendy and me into his main workroom, shut the door, and he said, you two are the only one I can work with. I'm getting rid of everybody else. That's the only one. So then it was basically John and I for the rest of the bulk of two years. Uh, except for the last six months when David Wren came at night okay. after his day job as uh, he worked for a graphic arts firm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would come and we'd get him cutting blocks and sweeping the floor. And then when I left to open up my shop, John quit his, Dave quit his job, started working with John. Okay. And then later, when he was still in Toronto, but at a different location, he had five or six people. It was about a couple years after that, Linda joined him and a few other people. And then they went out west with him, but then realized, ah, this is becoming not something they were interested in. It's becoming more of a production shop. I see. So they came back, and John has grown ever since. Yeah. John Larivé. Uh, he came out of poverty in the eastern townships of Quebec. Mm. That's a region that's called that, the eastern yeah. townships and came to Toronto, became a licensed mechanic. Mm -hmm. That was his main job. And he was so naturally gifted at thinking mechanically that he had the highest exam results in this province at wow. the time. And then I would, when I was with him, we would drive down to New York to the docks to pick up lumber. These big lumber dealers would hardly give you the time of day for your little nothing, because they were selling to big lumber chains across oh, the country yeah. and everything, right? And we just wanted a couple of billets of ebony. <laughs> and finally, they get around to letting you buy something. And then we drive you know, these billets, these wax-covered hunks of ebony logs back. Um, and I remember John's frustration at being so small that we didn't even Mm -hmm. given the time of day. That and the drive to get out of poverty and his natural inclination points to somebody perfectly suited for tooling up mm -hmm. for manufacturing. In yeah. fact, his hobby when I was with him was to spend his nights going to a friend's machine shop and remaking all his tools. <laughs> I'm talking about even shapers. Uh -huh. He would make the high-speed steel um, spiral cutters. Mm -hmm 
a shape that he liked better than the ones you could buy. Wow. That's incredible talent to do that. Yeah. That was his hobby. Pull them, buy a new machine, pull it all apart, and make all new parts for it. Jeez. So talk about set for tooling up, you know, the mm -hmm. incentive to make money and to never have to worry about money in your life. Right. And, and, you know, anyway. The prowess to, yeah, just he, So you could that. see that the way he went was natural for him. Mm -hmm. Whereas me and Linda and Dave, and we, we took the art yeah. route of individual dealing with, you know, one customer at a time sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, with my customers, besides all the customized elements of the physical thing mm -hmm. that you can tailor to their needs or their problems, um, then we get into the inlay art, which speaks to them personally. It's such a multi-layered, rich transaction. Yeah. And I love that. I become friends with all my customers. Yeah, I love every luthier seems to say that. That's so sweet. Yeah, and, and I love that aspect of it. And mm -hmm. really, really, they do. I've gone mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, a customer in, in Norway, and we visited him, <laughs> and, and, uh, and Singapore, and, you know, wherever. And, and we get together when we can. It's, it's really gratifying. Yeah. You know, and, and feeding you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so the antithesis of the digital culture, yeah. where less and less of us know how everything actually works. Mm -hmm. I think that's where, you know, the, the reaction of, you know, vinyl coming back and mm -hmm. even, you know, this little sub pocket, they want cassettes back, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It's all just people feeling the need for tactile. Yeah, just wanting to just, understand and you know, conceptualize very much yeah, in the real yeah. world yeah and even people you know younger people who stopped going into music stores to buy mm -hmm. buy cds but you'd find out when i talked to them and this is because i had a record company for mm -hmm. 25 years right yeah um that i would talk to them and say well do you ever what do you do do you go listen to bands oh yeah yeah i go to live shows yeah and do you buy their music and they, oh yeah for sure <laughs> They don't equate that with purchasing a CD. When you ask them, they think, you mean like walk into a record store and buy mm -hmm. it? Well, they don't do that. But they were happy to buy it from the person mm -hmm. because they have the satisfaction of handing the creator the money exactly. and showing them support. Mm -hmm. To me, this is where instrument makers are part of a, this phenomenon uh, of the artisanal values yeah. in our modern society. Yeah. And at the same time, I remember um, when I was part of the provincial craft organization, I was on its board for a while, blah, blah, blah. And um, I remember um, giving a talk at some symposium or something and, and just talking about the fact that um, you could, during a recession, when retail was suffering, mm -hmm. even craft stores were suffering. People yeah. weren't coming in to buy the pottery or the stained glass or whatever it was, or the wood-turned bowls. Um, but people were going to craft shows where they could meet the creator personally. Mm -hmm. Because of that personal connection, yeah. it became an appealing transaction. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so it's not that they were afraid to spend their money, it's just they wanted something better mm -hmm. than just handing it to a clerk yeah. in a store. Definitely. And, and the craft shows were booming, and people were selling well at the same time as their own work that they had sold to a store was hardly moving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense because I think just, yeah, we all have so many options now. And yeah. so it's, it's almost like paradox of choice, but one way to sort of narrow the focus is to find the people who you can actually meet and actually have that personal transaction yeah. with. Which is nice. So I feel incredibly lucky, mm -hmm. you know, to be doing something that I love 
Yeah, that doesn't mean every day is wonderful. You know, there's days when everything seems to be turning to shit. You know, of course, <laughs> the wood is doing something you never predicted. And yeah. no matter how many years you do this, there's always something new that can happen. Mm -hmm. Or the thing that hasn't happened to you in 40 years is going to happen again. <laughs> oh, no, not this again. You know, so, I mean, welcome to life, right? Yeah. That's that way and everything. But, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, some people retire from the business world mm -hmm. to, to learn to be a guitar maker because yeah. they've always played and they yeah. like the idea of making their guitar, whatever it might be, I'm doing it now. Mm -hmm. And never. And then we get to the inlay art where this other dimension to my creative need, mm -hmm. I can't, I'm getting paid to do. Yeah. Don't tell anybody, you know, <laughs> or they won't do it, you know. And uh, some people have even said, you know, Greg, you could be charging a lot more for the inlay because you're doing things nobody else is doing. Yeah. And I said, yeah, but you know, I only inlay my own guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's in the context of people already buying expensive instruments. Right. If I raise the price, yeah, I could get more, but it also means I probably couldn't do as many mm -hmm. full projects because people would be out of budget. Yeah. And I'd like to be able to do this. And it's still pricey. I mean, you know, a full neck inlay, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that can add, you know, at, at, you know, 105 bucks an hour, I'm, I'm over 100 hours very frequently. Yeah. So that's a big chunk of change. Yeah. You know, and, and it's basically people buying art mm -hmm. at the same time, but it's personal. Yeah, it's personal and functional. Yeah, yeah, and I even tell them that when we're discussing themes. I said, no, you know, don't do another dragon. Anybody <laughs> can do that. What has meaning for you mm -hmm. in your life? And then tell me what it is, and then tell me why it has mm -hmm. meaning, so I can understand how to depict it for you. Mm -hmm. you know? One time, somebody said, well, fishing. I said, okay, but what is it about fishing? He said, you know what? It's not even catching the fish. It's that I can slow down from my normal hectic life as I stand in the stream waiting for a bite mm -hmm. in beautiful nature on a gorgeous day. Yeah. He said, that's what I long for, mm -hmm. is the mood. And, and the quietness and the pace drop. So I tried to capture that mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, you know, here's a, here's a trope, you know, at the end of a line, you know. Uh, so it's things like that, yeah. you know, that, yeah. and I just, I don't know, I just, I just love doing that and I love the challenge. Mm -hmm. So even when it's through a dealer, like you guys, as happened, I always say I need to talk to the individual yeah. in person. It's more that I need to hear their way of expressing the things yeah. that are important to them because that tells me how important mm -hmm. you know and when they keep repeating something or there's a tone in their voice i underline it oh this is this element has to be included mm -hmm. that's important to them you know yeah and this or here's the adjectives they use to describe it mm -hmm. and those adjectives have different meaning from these and and it guides me yeah so yeah it's not just like if you ask them just to write out what they wanted, they might write yeah. a different thing. But if they're actually just talking right. about it and going off the cuff, you can pick up on those more subconscious cues and, and notes and, and maybe kind of get to the, the root of what they want better than they could on their own. Yeah, you have nailed it exactly right. Because mm -hmm. sometimes it is, you know, there's long emails back and forth, mm -hmm. but usually that's after, yeah. after we first started. So I don't care where they are on the planet, I want to talk to them. So with all your inlay work, what, what do you have? Do you have a visual arts background? Did you, st I mean, it sounds like you went straight into guitar making, so... Was there any yeah. apprentice or taking lessons with a any sort of visual artist? Nope, no, no. Wow. Self-taught. Yeah. Self-taught drawing. Self-taught engraving. Crazy. Because uh, I didn't learn that. I mean, everybody learns to cut a bit of shell when you learn to make guitars. You know, yeah, I could have you doing it in ten minutes, mm -hmm. uh, as I did. You know, from John. Mm -hmm. But his inlays were pretty simple back then. Mm -hmm. This happened well afterwards, and. Um, 
No, to art background, no. I always wish I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sisters had some natural ability. They all painted, you know, amateur, mm -hmm. but they painted. Uh, I never did, but there must have been something innate there mm -hmm. because I would start drawing and I think, oh, I don't know, how can I do this, that eye? How do I get the eye right? And oh, when in my old shop where the dentist was in front, I'd go, and if the secretary wasn't busy, I'd say, can you just, for a minute, can you just lean down to the left <laughs> and, and where the light is coming from? And I just want to see, oh, okay, okay. That's what the eye is doing. Thanks, great. And then I'd run back and try and do it. And I think, ah, that's why artists hire models. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would start hiring models. Mm -hmm. That's when I learned and just taught myself. But then, big jump. My wife, who was an educator, knew about a book called Drawing on the Right Side I of the Brain. I love that book. Yes. Such a great book. Yes. I, it was new to me, but mm -hmm. I worked my way halfway through that book. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener. It really is. Yeah. I'm glad you know about mm -hmm. it. I've, I've got at least four copies, mm -hmm. you know, later editions and stuff. And when I teach inlay engraving, I borrow some of the early works. Um, exercises. Exercises, yeah. thank you. And, and I use them, mm -hmm. and that was a real eye-opener, and that I just jumped from there. Yeah. And then it's just doing. Mm -hmm. And the more you do it, you just get better at it, to the point where, you know, okay, I've got, I've got an image of this, but you know what? I need to turn them slightly, and I need that arm to be down here, not up here, and so I'll just draw it out, mm -hmm. you know, and I find I can do that and, and, you know, reliably. Or, as I say, I'll hire models, or if it's friends who are modeling for me, I go to their place, I bring my ladder, because I want to take a picture of them foreshortened. Mm -hmm. You know, I love doing that and, and pushing the envelope of what's been seen in any yeah. way. Um, not just the fact that through the millennia, I mean, you know, instruments have been inlaid. You know, in Egyptian tombs, they found inlaid instruments. Oh, really? So we're talking about thousands of years. And yet, literally, tortoise shell, ivory, ebony. Um, oh. But even when they got more natural looking, it was still cartoonish and representational. Mm -hmm. You know, winged creatures and cherubs and, and yeah. leaves and things. And as opposed to the art world that went incredible realism. And okay, now the way of photography, we don't need to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. What else can we, where can we go in art and make people feel things? Mm -hmm. Whereas in this world, it was always cartoonish and I wanted to push it to a degree of realism mm -hmm. just because it made me happy. Yeah. That's all. I'm just satisfying my own urges. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what I do. And But even that could be taught. Mm -hmm. As I do, when I teach, I'll show people what I had to figure out by myself over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in three or four days, I'll show them, here's how to accurately engrave a face, mm -hmm. you know, and capture all the elements yeah. that make that person that person. And uh, not that it's going to be perfect first time, but they'll all look like human beings, even yeah. though they don't all look like the person they're <laughs> copying, you know? So I love changing the angles. I love foreshort where people are looking up yeah. or things like that because it also uh, solves some things for me. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I had to show you on a fretboard, you know, either, you know, vertical, get the whole you, or horizontal, and we've only got the shoulders and the head, right, mm -hmm. on, the, on the, the width of a fretboard. But if I can foreshorten you, uh, if we're looking down on you from here, mm -hmm. then we can see, you know, maybe your arms across you and top of your, your nose, and we can see your feet and your knees, and you, there's all of you there, mm -hmm. but you only occupy this much of the fretboard now instead of this much. Yeah. So it leaves you room to do other things, never mind if it might 
suit the subject, mm -hmm. that people are at different angles and stuff yeah. like that. Anyway, I love doing it also because people never did it yeah. in this medium. Um, and then the key, one of the key things for me is the narrative arc mm -hmm. whenever possible. It's a story, I like telling stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it to be just decoration. You know, some fancy stuff here, some fancy stuff there, some fancy stuff there. Yeah, stick some things in the bridge wings and yeah, away we go. <laughs> you know, fine, done, take skill. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't turn my crank. Yeah. And, uh, and let other people do it. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, you can love it and it can be beautiful. It just doesn't satisfy me. So uh, I want the story told. Mm -hmm. And I search for some kind of narrative arc. Now with Simons, uh, it's a little different. We wanted to capture a woman who's passed away. Um, um, but um, the arc is, is completed by her totem, which appears at the top and the bottom, mm -hmm. you know? And then you can follow some action happening. So it's not as distinct a storyline as some others. Like in this other one I showed you, yeah. where I built anime characters with Greek myths, but they're now interacting with each other mm -hmm. and trying to prevent something. Yeah. You know? Or when I can do what I want, which sometimes if I'm building a guitar for a show or mm -hmm. something like that, the for nobody that I'll just sell after, um, usually I get into social activist stuff, you know, mm -hmm. the power of music, anti-war, you know, peace, anti-violence, stuff that is important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I will do when I can. You might know, uh, you know, the organization Doctors Without Borders. Mm -hmm. it's a, it began as Médecins Sans Frontières. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'm a real supporter, a regular monthly supporter. I believe strongly in what they do. Mm -hmm. They are so brave. They go into conflict zones, and some of them are killed, yeah. but they still do it. They're in Ukraine, they're everywhere. They're in Pakistan helping with the floods. They're everywhere in the world. Anyway, so I built a guitar honoring them. The inlay was all about what they do. Mm -hmm. And when I sold it, I, I took about a third of it and just donated a lump to them. Aww. And then they put it in their newsletter to show other ways of support. I just love doing things like that. Or this yeah. one, I told you what was happening with this one mm -hmm. that's supporting this Canadian organization called Arts Can Circle that takes music and musicians and musical equipment up into the most, most remote indigenous communities in the country, mm -hmm. in the wilderness of the north. And, and, and this guitar, some of the money is going to be used to bring a, an indigenous kid down to study guitar making mm -hmm. and take it back to his community and start something. That's you know, amazing. this stuff really turns my crank. And, and Linda Manzer, who's a dear, dear friend, um, and who we, but we're mutual admiration here, you know, <laughs> she does amazing stuff. And she just built this guitar that's being sold to raise money for Ukraine. And this guitar is traveling around the U.S. at the moment. Famous people are signing the guitar, signing the case, and it'll eventually, well, people are donating, mm -hmm. but then eventually it will also be sold and added to the auction. Oh, so, great. and I, you know, Linda and I talk about doing stuff like this all the time. Um, just like even this show, the, uh, you see, yeah, I, I, what's here? The t-shirt from, from this exhibit that was uh, Linda Manzer's idea that mm -hmm. happened in a major gallery here a few years ago. Cool. Um, that was uh, all of us who learned from John Larravee while he was in Toronto mm -hmm. uh, at different years, but all roughly in the you know the early 70s. Um, there were six of us plus John, seven, and there's the group of seven, mm -hmm. which is the most famous art group in Canada. Mm -hmm. You know, early early 20th century. 
Um, and uh, it was her idea, why don't we each interpret one of those artists? There's seven of us. We're just like them. We're collegial. We're friends. We help each other. You know, we, we socialize. You know, we go out to movies together. We eat dinner together. Uh, we're having problems. We call each other up. We buy wood and lacquer together. You know, just like them. They all associated would go painting en plein air together um, in, the, in the provincial parks and stuff. Anyway, um, we thought, great idea. Let's present it to some of the major art institutions, see who will go for it. Mm -hmm. The first one we went to, because they were known to be leaders in Group of Seven Art, we thought, if they don't like it, we'll move on. And they did. And they financed it. They bought these, commissioned these guitars from us, mm -hmm. and had an exhibit which became one of the most successful exhibits they've ever put on. That's this crazy. institution that's like 55 years old, mm -hmm. major, major. And they extended the show an extra five months, and then they took it to, to England. Um, all these guitars, and, uh, and they own the guitars. Wow. And they had performances all through the run of 11 months, mm -hmm. where they would, they would bring uh, the builder, a player and an interviewer on stage live. And they cool. talk about their relationship and then, you know, mine, uh, I made a flamenco for the show just to be different. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesse Cook played mine. Uh, he already had been playing one of my guitars for a long time, so okay. it made sense. Uh, he isn't now, he's moved on to a Spanish builder, the bum, but he did, mine was his main <laughs> axe for about 16 years oh, wow. until he beat it all to shit, I think, you know? <laughs> Although he does still own Two, two of my guitars. But anyway, uh, Jane, Jesse came and played for me. Even those, every one of the perform of these, there were seven of them, seven guitars, mm -hmm. all sellouts, which has never happened when they do music programming or other, wow. you know, things to bring people into the gallery. So it was so successful for them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, even though, and a film was made on it too. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's such an unusual project. Yeah. So yeah, I, that I mean, was Linda's idea. That's Linda's that's concept. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was still a highlight for all of us, you mm -hmm. know? You're such a great storyteller. I love, I love getting all these backstories and seeing how everybody's connected and, um, and just yeah, yeah, seeing yeah. sort of the interweaving of, of everybody's storylines. Because yeah. the more I talk to more luthiers, the more that's the case. Like, yeah. you're all such a tightly knit group of folks. Yeah. So. And you know, there's a real collegiality here, especially in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, amongst all the luthiers, even yeah. though technically we're all competing with each other, technically. But it you would never guess that. No, no. You guys talk about each other. <laughs> yeah, we're small producers, yeah. you know. It's not like we're Taylor or, or Martin or Gibson or yeah. Larravee, you know, that need to sell, you know, tens of thousands every month or whatever. Yeah. Anybody who calls, if they have a problem, I'm happy to tell them anything they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here's how I do this. Mm -hmm. you know, no problem. You know, there's no secrets. Yeah. And one of the reasons... I certainly personally feel there's no reason to have secrets or, you know, I'm not going to tell you because I figured this out myself. You're going to have to figure it out, you know, take all the, you know, it took me years, you know, <laughs> um, because here's, here's what I know. Stradivarius made violins right up till pretty much near his death and he mm -hmm. died at age 93. And during that time, and by the way, his best instruments are considered from his 60s and 70s. That's his prime mm. period. Anyway, he had a nephew and an uncle work with him, right in his workshop, mm -hmm. following his instructions. When he died, they carried on and built. Their instruments were never considered as good. Hmm. Even though they're seeing, they're this close to him as you and I, mm -hmm. they're doing how he instructs, they're watching what he did, because there is something 
intuitive that you bring to all your decision making mm -hmm. that you may not often even be conscious of. Sometimes some of it you are conscious of and you could convey. But there were some things he couldn't convey mm -hmm. and they couldn't make an instrument that good. So even if I trained somebody, their guitars, even though they were making my design, they're going to sound a little different yeah. and feel a little different. And every builder is a little different mm -hmm. and everyone needs to find the players that are the ones looking for what you're producing. Exactly. And that's why, you know, a player needs to go to a music store and play 10, 12, 15 guitars. Yeah. Or if what they're after is, is uh, you know, the Martin D18, they've got to play 10 of them at a few different stores to find the one that's really yeah. speaking to them. Even though the others, they may be good guitars, but it's not giving the sounds that they are looking to hear mm -hmm. because no two humans are the same. Yeah. Psychology and physiology all play a role. Mm -hmm. So that's why I know there's no worries about competition No. because you're going to be making something different that will appeal to the person who my guitars won't appeal to, mm -hmm. you know? And I know that. Yeah. Some people want the Martin sound. They don't want the Laskin sound. You know, or they want the Taylor sound. They want something a little more percussive or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a sidebar, but it just, in my head, while I think about it and get it on record, <laughs> we are on record here, but that, um, you know, because I push the envelope with the inlay art, mm -hmm. never mind the oddities, not as odd anymore as a, you know, a, a bevel. <laughs> the pe pe oh, Grit's the one who whacks bits off guitars, you know? <laughs> That's what they used to say at the beginning. Not anymore. Yeah, and the side ports, what's a hole doing there? You know, I, I have to produce a superb sounding and playing instrument every time, mm -hmm. or I will be dismissed in a minute. Mm -hmm. The last thing I can have people saying, oh, Grit's guitars are beautiful, but you know, put them on a wall. If you really want a good guitar to play, just get a Collins. You know? <laughs> I can't have people thinking yeah. like that, even though some may because they see all these pictures of the inlay because mm -hmm. it's always different and it you know right. it's, it's in your face right with all yeah. the colors and everything. But first and foremost, you're a musician, and so you're always looking out for the tone and the playability yeah. and the sound. And so, however much time you're going to spend on the inlay and on the visuals, the core part is the sound, and you're. You're never going to lose sight of that. Well, thank you. You know, but it's it. I must, mm -hmm. or 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 my career is over. Yeah. And people who are ordering things sight unseen, mm -hmm. trusting that I'll be able to deliver. Yeah. You know, but I mean, and that's the thing. All makers have to pay attention to mm -hmm. to be consistent, which is what new builders don't quite understand. You know, mm -hmm. that it takes a decade at least, and at least a hundred guitars, yeah. before you're starting to ha have enough experience to make intelligent guesses, informed right. guesses. Yeah, you sort of build on, up that intuition. Yes, of, of what this wood is likely to do in combination with this, mm -hmm. with these dimensions, right. you know? And that's just doing, mm -hmm. like anything else. Yeah. But consistency is the key for a small builder. Mm -hmm. It isn't like a manufacturer who always puts a bell curve of results. You know, you get some that are astonishingly amazing, some that are crap, and a whole bunch in the middle that are just good. Yeah. And that's why when you're buying a commercial guitar, you have to try a bunch of them mm -hmm. and find one that's really speaking to you. Yeah. Whereas I have to deliver that every time. And, you know, knock on wood, you know, my customers are all, thank thankfully, they seem blown away every time. Mm -hmm. So how much... Um how much do you spend time playing music these days? Are you, yeah. you said that you had a few gigs that you, you might do later this year with your band, which you've been playing with since you were 18. That's right, which is yeah. incredible. I know, I know. <laughs> and now, you know, families watch their kids grow up. Some of them become musicians. Like, we're like family, mm -hmm. you know. And that's why we still do it, because it's yeah. hard to say no. We just have fun together. Yeah. 
when I was a kid, 17 years old, I came to Toronto for, for the for this work in a recording studio that mm -hmm. I said. And I heard about this music club called Fiddler's Green. And they said, oh, if you call and book a spot, anybody can go do a guest set of three, three songs or 15 minutes, whichever came mm -hmm. first, right? Okay, so I did. And the guy who ran the club kind of liked it because at that time I was getting into American traditional music. Mm -hmm. And I was learning the banjo from Pete Seeger's book. And I was learning dulcimer and I played guitar and I'm learning traditional American tunes. And, uh, and he heard me play more than just guitar and I played a song I wrote that was a funny one and he loved it, I had a sense of humor and everything. Why don't you come back and do a gig, right? So I did a gig. And then he said, you know, we, we're, a bunch of us have been getting together and playing, and we could use somebody who plays guitar. Do you want to come along to one of these rehearsals? Oh, sure, okay. And it turns out, a club in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that's still running, The Ark in Ann Arbor. I've been there. You've been there, yeah. okay. Well, we, our band, okay, no, no. The Ark, uh, Dave and Linda, who ran, started The Ark, Dave and Linda Siglin, mm -hmm. their daughter, uh, Anya, now does the booking. Mm -hmm. But at the time, she was just a little nothing. At the, uh, they knew about Fiddler's Green, and they said, hey, why don't we send some of our floor singers up, and you send some of yours down, and we just do a trade, yeah. you know, one weekend. Okay, so a bunch of us went down, well, we were just a bunch of singers. And, well, who are we? Well, we're the friends of our club. We're the friends of Fiddler's Green. So, okay, and it was a format, just like a, like a songwriter's circle or something, and we'd each do a song, and then we'd move on. And then, got back home, we thought, well, why don't we try a, a fiddle tune together? Let's play a tune instrumental. Yeah. So we tried one tune. And I went, oh, hey, that was kind of fun. And then, well, maybe we could play on each other's songs. You know, uh, let me try some some mandolin on your tune. You know, and it just became we became a cohesive, a loose but cohesive band. Mm -hmm. And it's still the structure. There's uh, the main singers, but we rehearse mm -hmm. and we do proper arrangements of instrumental tunes and we accompany each other. And now we practice. You know, <laughs> but. We may rehearse a bunch of stuff, but in the, on the stage, in the moment, people may choose to do different numbers. Yeah. Because the mood is different from what they were planning. And, <laughs> you know, this song would suit it better after yeah. that one that just happened. And then, oh, okay. Oh, you're in G, eh? Right? So pick up my mandolin and just listen. Oh, how's the melody of the verse? Okay. And then you start playing. Yeah. And that just happens on stage all the time. Yeah. Or people fun. tell jokes. One of our band members is really a Scottish guy. is really good at telling jokes. Great sense of timing. And he always has new ones, and we've never heard them. And we're cracking up on stage, and we're we're entertaining ourselves. <laughs> we're just having fun, Aww. anyway. And we've retained the name, the Friends of Fiddler's Green. Mm -hmm. But that's how it started, and we just didn't have the heart to change the name. That's so even though horrible. it's a wacky kind of name. No, I think that's great. That's such a great legacy and such yeah. a such a great backstory. And that's like that is like a folk tradition, like basically in in a nutshell, right way, there. Yeah. Just loose, collaborative, right. a lot of off the cuff stuff. But there's there's a consistent structure that everybody kind of understands. Yeah. You, you know the keys, yeah. you know the, the chord progressions to work with. So even if you don't know the song, you're still Yeah, prepared. yeah, <laughs> or you basically know people's about yeah. people's repertoire and where they're coming from. Yeah. So the others are mostly Brits, so that got me into British traditional music. Mm -hmm. And I started, you know, took up the concertina. I was teaching myself the Northumbrian small pipes. I noticed that, and yep. I, I heard that on one of your albums, and I was like, oh, I wonder if he's got a bandmate who plays them, but nope, that's you. that's me. Awesome. Yep. And mandolin, of course. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and I play a little bit of fiddle, but I play at the fiddle, because I'm a mandolin player. But, right. I, but I never got to the point I, I've set it aside because I never got to the point where I could do vibrato this way mm -hmm. and without it slower tunes or accompaniments just yeah. didn't sound as good whereas true. on guitar it's no problem but somehow 
I just didn't have the patience to work my muscles for that move. Yeah. Even though I was getting into the bowing, you know, so I can play in a pinch, but mm -hmm. I don't really play. And also the mando I play is, is a bigger scale. It's yeah. one of the octave things that I was I wondering built. if that was an octave. Yeah. So you built that one. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and it's actually five courses. Okay, so so it's, it's an octave low, but with an extra high string. Yeah. Oh, cool. Because it's got a, um, the scale length is from a tenor banjo, mm -hmm. standard tenor, not a plectrum, but a standard gotcha. tenor. And it means the fifth fret is perfectly played with the pinky. Mm -hmm. Whereas on a normal okay. mandolin, there isn't room for that. Mm -hmm. uh, you're playing it with your fourth. So it took me a couple of weeks to get the pinky going, mm -hmm. but now I'm used to that stretch. And I wanted it, I didn't want the big, you know, what was coming out of the British folks seeing these big bazooki length necks, and yeah. they were taking citterns and tuning them differently. Big scales, they sounded better and more powerful, but I wasn't doing it for accompaniments, I was doing it for the Melody, tune playing. Yeah. And it's too big a stretch for the tune playing. Mm, so yeah, I wanted something I could deal with, but that would sound a little richer. Mm -hmm. So then I realized, you know, if I, if I add a fifth course and make it the high string, that means since I don't have the pinky available, you know, on a mandolin, you might, you can bounce up for the next tone or in the fiddle, mm -hmm. you can reach with the pinky for another two more frets and, right. and get another tone. Well, I'm already using the pinky. It's not available. Mm -hmm. But if I add a high string, that means I can get two and a half tones higher without leaving first position mm -hmm. by staying within the fifth fret and, but moving to the high string. Mm -hmm. So that's why I did it. Oh, cool. And yet, but I've got the low G if needed, or yeah. sometimes if I'm playing in other keys, I make them drones and stuff, you yeah. know? But that's, yeah, I made it. And I just started cool. trying to find a model that works for me, mm -hmm. for the music I wanted to play. And every once in a while, friends would say, oh, would you make me one? I was, gonna, I was wondering yeah. if you, yeah. If you but I don't advertise those. it, because I don't yeah. really want to make them. I see. You know? And, the, and now when I make them, they're little guitar shapes, mini guitar shapes. I see. So you're not doing is, like the... No, I used to at the beginning, the mm -hmm. teardrop thing. But then it was Katie Lang who, who wanted one, and she saw in an old Sears Roebuck catalog, you know, those little uh, old guitar shapes, mm -hmm. and she loves that shape. So from the catalog, I kind of drew it out, but made it within, you know, Mando size kind uh -huh. of thing, and that's what I've been doing ever since. But I, yeah. I don't, they don't interest me so much. I have mm -hmm. what makes me happy to play. Yeah. I'm not a mandolin maker, mm -hmm. and I also tell people, you know, I now put a pin bridge on it, because that gives it a little meatier sound than a tailpiece okay. yeah. when it's a flat top. Mm -hmm. And I said, I won't make a normal mandolin because I'm not prepared to carve the top. And that's yeah. the only way to get a nice, solid, meaty sound off mandolin. Anyway, so yeah, so I play that and, and I'm still rooted in the British stuff. Yeah. But I love traditional music, period. And Me that too. started... <sighs> that started when my older sister left home first to go to university and left behind some of her albums. And I started playing them, and one of them was the Weavers at Carnegie Hall 1955 mm. concert. I taught myself every song on that <laughs> record. And she also left behind Pete Seeger, We Shall Overcome, a live record. And I, these things totally moved me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, everybody still admires Pete and what he did for the music scene here. Mm -hmm. um, he even recorded one of my songs. Oh, really? And performed with it for a while, yeah. Very cool. Uh, 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 a takeoff on sexual symbolism in a traditional song. And Ooh. this one's all about photography. Interesting. Called The Photographers that I do on Concertina. I've got to look this up. And, um, but it was published in a folk magazine at some point, and I think his wife Toshi saw it and said, Oh, Pete, you need to sing this. This is fun. <laughs> you know, do this one. 
And he called me <laughs> early on. And it was in my first shop. I could still picture it. I got a phone call and I thought it was my friend faking me out. I said, Tam, I'm busy. I'm working. No, no, no. This is Pete. And then I, oh, you're right. That is the sound of his voice. Oh, no. My wow. God, Pete Singer. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, he's telling me he wanted permission to record and perform the song. Uh -huh. Of course. Like, what am I going to say? Yeah. And, no uh, to Pete Singer. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, but most of the phone call was telling me all about what he was doing to clean up the Hudson River. And I really should do that for Lake Ontario. Sure, <laughs> anytime, you know, coming right up. Um, anyway, but he did, he did record it. And I joke uh, that from just that recording, the royalties from that single recording paid for my electric bill for an entire month. <laughs> That's it. Welcome to folk music. Yeah. You know, this is not pop music. You know? Yeah, you don't go into it to make the money. You go into it for the community. That's right, you know, and I still love it. And he'd write, me, he'd write me letters from time to time when he'd see an article about me in a mm -hmm. magazine or something, you know. And, uh, but he wrote to lots of people, you know. Mm -hmm. but, and then Peggy became a friend of mm -hmm. ours, you know, when my wife and I were running a, an adult music camp for about 35 years. Oh, man, you've done yeah, We did all a the lot cool of things, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's where the Order of Canada comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, that, they, that is our highest civilian award in this country. And you have to be excellent and innovative in your field, mm -hmm. but also have done more mm -hmm. things that benefit the country in general. Right. So starting the National Folk Music Awards, which are still running 17 mm -hmm. years later, CFMA juried folk awards. Um, that now even Folk Alliance is copying us, and they, they begged me to tell them some, some of the ways we structure it <laughs> and do the juries. Um, you know, Borealis Records for 25 years, you know. Is it still going? Uh, it, it, we've sold it mm -hmm. to our distributor partner, True okay. North Records, which uh, was Bruce Coburn's, well, still is his label, started by his manager, Bernie, mm -hmm. way back in the Yorkville days, in the early days of music, when there were no independent albums. Yeah. And anyway, we'd been distributing with True North for about 13 years, mm -hmm. and we found we got, uh, you know, better distribution because we tied our, rep you know, our mm -hmm. rosters together. Yeah. Um, and whereas, you know, they got into some folky stuff that we had already gotten into from going over to the Meet Them show year after year after year mm -hmm. and meeting with people. Um, but that was only a year and a half ago. Okay. 25 yeah. years I gave it, and it was a labor of love. Never earned a penny from it. In fact, mm -hmm. money went the opposite way. <laughs> Welcome to folk music. Yeah. When things were tight, kept things going. We had staff. We had an office. We, wow. had, we had a roster of almost 70 acts. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. More than 230 releases. And we were putting out traditional music that we knew would may not realize, even make its yeah. money back, but we've got some other bigger sellers, mm -hmm. you know, that will do oh. the job and will com will compensate or, you know, grit would throw cash in as needed. <laughs> and, you know, that's the way it was. Yeah. And we accepted that. That's, that's amazing, though. Yeah. I mean, that's, unfortunately, that's just kind of the way some arts are, but yeah. It, yeah. that doesn't mean things shouldn't be given a voice or a platform. So it's Absolutely. We felt this is important, the yeah. music. And, and and we would look across the country, all regions, all styles, mm -hmm. um, everything under the huge 
folk slash roots umbrella, mm -hmm. which incorporates so many different genres from yeah. rootsy country to blues to world music to, uh, you know, even some early jazz standards mm -hmm. to songwriters to traditional fiddlers and accordion players and you name it, right? Mm -hmm. And mountain music and regional music here. Um, especially out east, yeah. you know, and Quebec traditional yeah. music has its own unique thing, and there's so many different things. Or Métis indigenous yeah. slash Celtic music there's from out west. From there. Absolutely, yeah. you know, and so we were looking at all this stuff all the time. That's really cool. And uh, and feel very gratified. And and then when we we made sure all the contracts were secure. Mm -hmm. with everybody who was willing to move over when we sold the label to our distributing partner. Mm -hmm. But it's not like, you know, establishing a new bit of software and selling it to Google for $50 million, you know? Mm -hmm. No. All we got is enough cash. Eventually, it'll be paid out to clear off the debts. Mm -hmm. That's it. Wow. But we feel that's good. We're mm -hmm. going to get out clean. And we made sure all our artists were secure. All their contracts were honored. Mm -hmm the way they were. So basically, our distributing partner, who we worked with for 13 years and knew him well, um, he just took over the contracts. Okay. But honors everything. And then when the contracts naturally end, it's up to the artists and then if they want to carry on the relationship or whatever, mm -hmm. that's their business after that. But they thanked us for not just doing what have been done through history. Ah, we're shutting the label down. Yeah, Bye. sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I know we owe you royalties, but we don't have any money. Too bad. Oh. You know, no. Everybody always, royalties were paid staff was paid, you know, and we're worried about everything else. And we made up the difference by grants or mm -hmm. tax credits, anything we could. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's, that's we, fabulous. Yeah. So that, that was Borealis Records. And, uh, and even that got started because I used to be on Stan Rogers' label. Oh, he really? was recording me. I was the first person he recorded, aside from himself. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, and then it had expanded to a few other acts, including my band, the Friends of Footers Green. Yeah. Uh, but then he died. And his wife... You know, she wasn't running the label, but she mm -hmm. felt obligated to keep her husband's music out there. So she carried that, but she divested herself of all I the see. other artists. The three or four acts were on the label, including me. And I had just recorded my next album. What do I do with it? And then I thought, okay, well, I could put it up myself. I could take out a line of credit and get it manufactured, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but why don't I get my friends together? And why don't we all throw some money in the pot that I was going to and maybe do something bigger? Mm -hmm. So I did, you know, my... my uh, uh, other, uh, Paul Mills and Bill Garrett, who are musicians, uh, who worked at CBC, mm -hmm. um, and were producers there as well, and then the musician Ken Whiteley, really known up here, producer, multi-instrumentalist, blah, 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 had his own little label. Um, I got them together, and we talked for a year. How could we do this and try and be viable, but be better for the artists? Mm -hmm. In other words, more money in their pocket, less in ours. Mm -hmm. So we did things like we never took publishing. The artists maintained it fully. They mostly licensed, so they maintained ownerships of their masters. So if they, when the contract was over, if they decided to leave, they take their masters with them. And that, they knew that was our incentive to make them happy mm -hmm. so they'd stay or we'd have nothing to sell. Yeah. Uh, which also meant when we tried to get extra investment to expand, bring some younger people into the label who could continue on when. My partner is even older than me, you know, we're getting on. Um, because of our model, no investors were interested. Oh my gosh. Because they could see that it's 85% licensed, mm -hmm. which means 85% of what you have to sell could walk away. 
as opposed right. to if you own the masters, you yeah. can sell them in some form indefinitely, you know, right. publishing, whatever. Um, and so it wasn't viable, whereas our distrib distribution partner knew us, so we ended up sensibly talking to him. But that's also why the money could only be so much, yeah. you know? Because um, he knew the dynamic, but he also knew, well, he's, he's got a good decade to continue mm -hmm. selling this stuff yeah. until, and then maybe he could carry on and develop a new relationship with these artists or many of them. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I forget where I was going with all that. See, I digress <laughs> from my points, but I hope it's interesting. Yeah, no, anyway. it's, you really get a picture of, of just how community and collaboration minded you are. I mean, yeah. we didn't talk about it in the interview, but you told me when I first got here about your collaboration with your friends to establish this yeah. whole building yeah. co-op, yeah. essentially, and, and the way you guys all worked together and made something happen at yeah. a time when it would have otherwise been almost impossible to make something happen. Um, and yeah, doing, working with your community like that to support each other yeah. and, and to take yourself out of the equation a little bit and just to be giving back is, yeah, that's yeah. obviously, I mean, I'm just like lavishing praise on you at this point, but that's so amazing. It's okay, it's okay, <laughs> keep it going, keep it going. I'm not complaining, but I appreciate, no, you got it. Yeah. You, you hear the message. Mm -hmm. And that is true, and it is important to mm -hmm. me and my wife, we're both like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, but the ability of one person to change things, I learned that lesson very early. Mm -hmm. And it's just continued. Every time you see a gap, you know, well, we need something going on here. Well, instead of waiting for someone else to do it, why don't we just do it? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's really where it's coming from. I feel like epoxy. I'm filling gaps. You know? <laughs> but um, when I was maybe 21, I was, you know, building, mm -hmm. and I was often going down to customs, clearing shipments of materials, and I would say to the customs page, you know, why is there 15% duty on this stuff? I can't buy this in Canada. Nobody makes this here. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing it in from the States or from Europe or wherever. And I said, why is there duties? What, in what industry is it protecting? Yeah. And they said, well, we don't know, but you have to pay. <laughs> so then I'd say, can I speak to your supervisor? And I climbed my way up until I got to you know, provincial. And I moved up. And when I got to federal politicians, the higher I got, the nicer people got <laughs> until I got up to a federal level that whatever minister was in charge of that area. And they said, oh, well, if you can tell us how you and your colleagues use this material, how much you use, what you do to it, you know, where it comes from, let me know. And we might be able to change things. Hmm. So I did. And it took two years. But I put a tariff item on the books wow. in Canada before free trade uh -huh. that for guitar and mandolin and banjo construction, all these materials were duty-free. Wow. And I'm talking about nuts and saddles, mm -hmm. cases, strings, all kinds of parts, yeah. tuners, you know, uh, machine heads, all these things that you... Nobody was making them in Canada yeah, at the time. Yeah, there was no competition. Yeah, so why was there duties? <laughs> the point of a duty is to protect a local industry, you know? So um, he did. Yeah. And that was on the book, 59825-1. Uh, <laughs> never forgotten. But that was a lesson. I'm yeah. in my early 20s, and look at that, what one person can do if you persevere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've applied that in so many situations. Mm -hmm. And you get in a habit. You know, now I'm reaching a point, I'm 69, and I'm thinking, you know what, I don't want to think those thoughts that much anymore because I'm, I'm too busy. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I'm getting tired of doing everything all the time. I'd yeah. like a break, you know? <laughs> so I'm trying not to get new ideas. Some have occurred to me, and I don't, don't go there, Brett. You know, I give myself a lecture, you know, and you're, you're well, you're relishing a little 
little more reasonable pace in your life at this point, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and one of the things I'm doing with it is I've always written, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've got four books published and one novel from a long time, from a while ago. Wow. Um, but I did, and a new uh, kind of thriller, but I, I knew I had a storyline that would be unique. It's, mm. it's related to instruments that oh, okay. no one else would, could have possibly thought of. Yeah. And they agree, and a lot of the comments are all saying, boy, he really knows his stuff about instruments and these characters and stuff, you know. <laughs> and, and they, the agents who have been around a long time, they said, don't do any rewriting. It's a gem the way it is. We feel it's confident it'll sell. And so I'm, now I'm sort of researching the next one, which oh, wow. will probably be a character that'll reappear. Okay. Um, but I've just enjoyed that. I've always done a bit of that. I think working with words, whether it's songwriting, you know, I was always a lyric-driven songwriter, not a yeah. groove-driven songwriter. That's the world I came from. From yeah, the ballads. Exactly. Story. I was mm -hmm. just about to say that story <laughs> ballads. Yeah. You know, that still appeal to me and grab my attention. Mm -hmm. Side anecdote on that subject: When I was a kid, the first record I bought with my own money was The Birds, Fifth Dimension. Mm -hmm. And on it, it had two traditional ballads. They, it wrote public domain. I didn't yeah. know what that meant at yeah. the time. But I remember one of them was a broken token ballad. Okay. You know, and, and for those who don't know about, you know, the, the, the girl and the boy separating, he's going off fortune hunting or to war or something. And he wa she wants to be able to recognize him when he comes back in seven years. So they break a coin or a ring in half so they can match up the halves when they come back and she'll know it's him even if she doesn't recognize him. <laughs> Called Broken Token Ballads, right? In general, in American and British mm -hmm. tradition especially. Could be in other traditions, I just don't know. Yeah. There's one on this album called John Riley. Oh, I love John Riley. Yes. That's a great song. And I heard this song, and even at that, I'm, I don't know, I was 14. Mm -hmm. I'm going, what is this? Yeah. I've never heard a song, such a powerful, moving story, and this melody that's so great. What is this stuff? That got me hooked on traditional music yeah. to this day. Yeah, Joan Baez's version of that song was one of the first ones where, because I'd heard some traditional music before that, like through, you know, Paul Simon covered a few things. Yeah. But I think it was really with Joan where I was like, ooh, what are these? Yeah, what, yeah. what is this song? What is this music? What is this tonality and this, this modality? And yeah, once I started finding more of those, you know, related albums, it was just down the, down the wormhole. Well, well, I can relate it. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, we're very much the same yeah. that way. Still have that love. I mean, I love all kinds of music, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, Stephen Sondheim, I'm in love with his stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it's brilliant. And, you know, I like classical music and, you know, I like all kinds of stuff, mm -hmm. you know? If it moves me and makes me feel something, yeah. it's successful mm -hmm. as a creative output. That's the way I judge it all. Yeah. And uh, even though my personal love is folk music and what it symbolizes on music that you can make, mm -hmm. you can participate. It isn't just sitting and being a consumer of. Yeah. You can make the music, mm -hmm. you can add to it. And that's what it's about. Yeah, that's like the, I think one of the best parts about the folk community is that yeah. it gives people that power, which mm -hmm. is so often easily, you know, people are just like, oh, I, I can't do that. It's too yeah. hard. And yeah. No, it makes it accessible. Exactly. So, yeah, that's why, one of the reasons, not the only but one that I still love all that stuff. Speaking more about your musical background, and I, I'm always curious to talk to luthiers about how what they play might impact what they build, because mm -hmm. there's kind of an interesting split of there are some luthiers who are primarily fingerstyle players, and so they mostly build fingerstyle guitars. But then there are plenty of others who build fingerstyle guitars, but they're they're mostly into surf music or something yeah, totally unrelated. Right. They're just sort yeah. of answering the sort of the the demand, I guess. And so I guess 
for you coming from the, the more folk-based background, but also building guitars that um, include flamenco guitars, classical guitars, things that go beyond just sort of maybe the kind of more humble mahogany kind of you know straightforward folk music guitars that um, people might kind of associate with that style. What what got you into building those guitars? Was it just again the demand that people were hmm. kind of placing upon you, or? Yeah, now that's interesting. All a little different. Obviously, I'm a steel string player, mm -hmm. so I was coming, you know, wanting to make a guitar that made me happy. Yeah. Of course, and and I like the tone I'm producing is what I want, and mm -hmm. I know it isn't everyone's taste. Mm -hmm. That's fine. It's got to have the basics, you know, in terms of power and yeah. balance, things like that, and sustain. But its general tone, I don't like an edgy, hard-edged tone. Mm -hmm. I like a mature, rounder sweetness, yeah. and yet still clear. You mm -hmm. must have clarity. So it's not mushy, but it's, I just think of it as more mature somehow. Yeah. And that makes me happy. Maybe it's coming from the fact that even in my own playing, sometimes I like doing melodic runs on the bass string, mm -hmm. as opposed to using them as accompaniment and playing the melody on the high string. Mm -hmm. I'll run the bass on, on, on the low A and E. Mm -hmm. you know, And, and I, I love being able to do that. So I want clarity even down there. But I love that low roundness. you know. Mm -hmm. So that's me. Um, and classical guitars are always made. But I have to admit, I stopped promoting myself in the classical world when I got tired of the how many neurotic people there were in that scene, you know, <laughs> up here. You know, everybody's different and different times could be different. Mm -hmm. I still make classicals and this is one, I've got another one on order, you know, but I don't push myself in the classical scene the way mm -hmm. some people do. Right. More power to them, but mm -hmm. that turned me off at that time. Yeah. And yet, flamencos, I wasn't building until a person who was the hub of Toronto's flamenco scene at the time. He was a player and a musical director of one of the dance companies and blah, blah, blah. He said, Great, why don't you try it? I've, I've had uh, Edgar Munch, John's teacher, when he was here in Toronto, mm -hmm. try it and came out like a flamenco-looking classical. And I had John try it, same thing, just sounded like a flamenco-looking classical. <laughs> said, give it a try, but read this stuff first, you know, and let me talk to you. And anytime I get a good one in, I'll call you over and you come and look inside and measure. And he would do that. The first one I made came out so good, people were bidding on it. And, uh, and that was, he was a traditional cypress back and sides, a very oh, traditional looking one. And I hadn't even tinted it at all, he mm -hmm. said. But the next one tinted a little bit. It looks like, you know, an unfinished maple furniture <laughs> to them. But it sounded so good. Mm -hmm. Literally three people were bidding on it. Wow. So he said, you're obviously doing something right, Grit. Keep going. Yeah. And I started doing it and then, and I fell in love with flamenco music, mm. especially the traditional stuff. Mm -hmm. Not the stuff that's getting into jazz. I appreciate the ability that some people, the Paco de Lucias of the world, are doing. Mm -hmm. But it's the traditional stuff. Yeah. All those Semitic minor chords that I just hooked me in, you know? Yeah. And as well as the fact that it's interpretive. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like jazz in a way that these fast runs, it's just how they're feeling in the moment, mm. you know? But also the challenge of building a guitar that can meet that. Yeah. It's the toughest action to achieve because it's with nylon strings that need a bigger vibrating room, mm -hmm. but it's an action that's as low as an electric guitar. Wow. So it will do some buzzing. There are certain buzz that is accepted. Interesting. But other buzzes that are not. Yeah. You have to get it to be perfect. And the bridge and saddle has to be within about a millimeter of total height. Or, or the Golpe technique of hitting the top, mm -hmm. they can't do it. You're too far away. Oh, okay. 
and that is part of the scene. Mm -hmm. And you're not only too far away, you're increasing the tensions. Mm -hmm. And with flamenco, um, because it's lower action, lower bridge, lower everything, I even grind the frets down so it's super low. Mm -hmm. um, the tension drops off. As you, when, when the strings is against the top, the lower they come, mm -hmm. the tension drops off dramatically. Mm -hmm. So the call guitar is built lighter to be able to respond to this I lower see. tension. At the same time, they hit it all the time. <laughs> and they cracked these braces. Like the braces stayed glued, but they're split. You know, and I, oh, so often I, you know, well, glue them up, put a reinforcement bit of, you know, lightweight cedar behind it and send them back out to fight the lions. Yeah. You know, that's what it felt like. And, and, but they loved it mm -hmm. when things would crack and break because then the instrument is suffering mm -hmm. and it understands the music mm -hmm. and where the music comes from because it comes out of poverty mm -hmm. in, in Spain. Yeah, that's where it came from. Yeah, there comes from that place of pain that so much, so much music comes from. Uh, exactly, and 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 honest to God, they really, truly feel the guitar sounds better mm. after it's been through some of that. Mm. Most, the most effective story, the same guy who got me into it, right? when he was still alive and he was heading to a gig, he was loading up his car, and he's backing out of his driveway and he drives over his guitar that he forgot to put in the trunk. Oh no. So he goes, and this was a, a Ramirez flamenco, his old Ramirez that he oh. loved, right? So he goes to a repair guy with a brown paper bag filled with bits. <laughs> and the oh. guy put the guitar together and there's all these, you know, joints <laughs> like Frankenstein where he just glued everything back, you know, yeah. against each other to get the shape back. And my friend said, that guitar never sounded so good. <laughs> it's like it relaxed it or something. He, he said it was fantastic. Yeah, so, see, this is why people need so, to not be so picky about repair histories on vintage guitars. Oh, yes. Oh, God, yeah. I tell them, yeah, that, that that's the patina of use. Exactly. You know, my God, if I was a violin maker and I tried to sell a guitar that isn't dirty and scratched up, mm -hmm. I mean, a violin, yeah. forget it. No yeah. one would want it. Yeah, the guitar no, community is so funny about that. Yeah, I it's, know. It's like the opposite of every. Oh, I got a ding. Should I refinish? Like, no. no leave it. <laughs> leave it. Exactly. I said, you know, you save the refinishing for a horrible accident yeah. because there's maybe one refinishing in a guitar. Yeah. Because I explained to them every time you strip the finish off, you're going to have to sand the wood a bit mm -hmm. and you're getting too thin. Mm -hmm. You can maybe do it one time and be solid, yeah. but that's it. So, really, just accept. Use. And then when I see a guitar, you know, a player's coming through town, mm -hmm. and, uh, hey, Grit, you know, should I pop by for my 10,000 strum checkup or something? <laughs> sure, sure, it'd be great to see you. And they're so proud. They, we open the case, and look how perfect the guitar is, and it's been 11 years, and, and he's so, he or she, they're so proud of how perfect <laughs> it is. And my only thought is, don't they like it? Oh, don't know, they play yeah. it? That's what I Where's think. the scratches? Where's the dings? <laughs> You know, what's wrong? That's yeah. what I think. Yeah. And then I see one that's, all the finish is gone from the back, from the belt buckle, and yeah. his sweat and nails has pulled half the finish off the neck, and it, you know, the, from a slashing with the pick, there's all oh, this, you know, <laughs> down to the raw wood, but the angle of the neck is perfect. Mm -hmm. The top arch is perfect. It sounds great. Yeah. I am a happy camper. Yeah. That's what you want.
welcome back for another episode of Presents here at the North American Guitar. I'm Lindsay, and today it is my honor to show off this incredible 50th anniversary mid-size guitar from Grit Laskin. Now, for folks who know Grit, he is he's well-loved and highly sought after, not only for his beautiful guitars, but also for his incredible inlay work. And for folks who don't know him, you've likely experienced the influence that he's had on the guitar building world because he's one of the co-originators of the, the top sound port, as well as the Laskin style beveled armrest and beveled rib rest, three features that you might see on countless guitars now made by other luthiers. It wasn't a natural like shell yes. or something like that. And so, right. do you, are you still working with stuff like that? I have a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. It's called Dichrolam. Dichrolam. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it was an invention of Chuck Erickson, the Duke mm -hmm. of Pearl, uh, and that was him trying to do something that wouldn't be the natural materials for the manufacturers. Are getting so frustrated by all the the you know environmental laws. Yeah. And you know they're fed up with dealing with it. It's and the little people like me, we can deal one at a time or do whatever. Mm -hmm. But when they're making, you know, they're shipping hundreds of guitars at a time to Europe or yeah. South America or whatever elsewhere in the U.S. and or across a border and being stopped by customs because of this material or that. Anyway, so he tried to come up with something man-made, mm -hmm. but it was the process was very expensive. Mm -hmm. And I got some sample sheets. Here's what it looks like oh, in the wow. raw. Here's what it looks like. Oh, get the dust That's off. Wild. Yeah. See, and underneath it's a substrate, mm -hmm. and it's got a clear layer, so you can inlay mm -hmm. and sand through the clear, but you're not touching this. Wow. How this was created, mm -hmm. and you see this sheet that was just well. There's the length, mm -hmm. and there's the width. That's what it cost, just for that size of little piece. Goodness. Anyway, but. This was one of the samples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I got one sheet reddish green, reddish mm -hmm. blue, and this one is blue green. Yeah. And I don't know if there's any more. Right. Oh. But I used it, I've been using it mm -hmm. when it suits certain things and mm -hmm. another way of making that guitar a little special. Yeah. You know, but it is expensive and rare stuff. Yeah. Are, are you trying to find other materials like that, kind of on that vein of avoiding? natural restricted products. Um, you know, I'm that. not in general, although I keep my eyes and ears yeah. open in case there's anything interesting, yeah. you know. Um, you know, it was I'm I'm the one who basically turned the community on to recon stone. Um, reconstructed stone, you know, all the primary okay. colors you're seeing, uh -huh. that's stone. Okay. And um, it, the knife industry knew it, carvers mm -hmm. knew it, uh, like sculptures, sculptors knew it. Um, and it was actually Larry Seifel from Pearlworks. He's, he passed away, but he created the company Pearlworks mm -hmm. that does inlay for the big manufacturers and stuff. Okay. Yeah. He, he's the one who figured out how to do inlay with CNC machines. Oh. He was the first one to do that and figure it out, how to mm -hmm. tool up. Brilliant guy. Died too young, but yeah. a lovely, lovely guy. Anyway, uh, sidebar, Larry Seifel and Chuck Erickson, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. they're the inventors of, of Avalam laminated shell sheets mm -hmm. of now uh, 25 or 30 different species, but it began with abalone, mm -hmm. so they called it abalam, laminated abalone. Mm -hmm. And they came up with a way of 
slicing on the curve, the gentle curve of the shell. You know, the shell's only about that big. I'm yeah. just showing the camera, right? <laughs> An abalone shell. And normally, you know, you'd cut little chunks that were about this big square. Sorry, I'm thinking of the camera. I'm to you. <laughs> about that big square. Yeah. You'd flatten one side and then slice. Yeah. And that's the normal piece of shell mm -hmm. that you'd get. But they found a way of cutting on the curve, cutting thin curved pieces, so thin that even though it's a hard material, it would flex and flatten. Okay. And then they could layer them. Oh, and right. build up sheets. Uh -huh. Hold on. See where you are. Oh, cool. There is a sheet of donkey shell. And you can see how it's been layered up. Yeah. This particular one, they, they cut it okay. that way. Yeah. Sometimes it's your square pieces, and mm -hmm. there's the bottom. Anyway, they've made it like this, so now you can do continuous things. Yeah. Instead of in the old days, you would have to butt mm -hmm. hard-edged pieces of shell together. Yeah. And now, Every guitar that you see that has abalone around the edges, mm -hmm. that's all cut from Avalam, mm -hmm. where they will you know, put in a computer program your shape, mm. and then from this one sheet, they could, they could do this much, yeah. and you could do an entire guitar with five pieces. Mm -hmm. And instead of the traditional of putting shell in, which is inch-long oh, pieces, yeah. and you just put them in, and you break them around the curve as yeah. you go. And that, you know, it revolutionized it, but it also meant people like me, uh, I can do things where backgrounds and materials and figures could be longer mm -hmm. because of that, as well as reconstructed stone. Now for the camera, I'll lift a piece. Uh, let's say, here's, here's a piece of malachite. Mm -hmm. oh, cool. Okay, and you're seeing the, the table saw that sliced this from oh, okay. a bigger block. Uh -huh. And that's about as thin as they'll do, about an eighth of an inch. And then I grind it down mm -hmm. on my thickness sander with heavy grits mm -hmm. and bring it down closer to the thickness of other shell. But this is recon stone, reconstructed stone. So is it just like pulverized? And then... Precisely. Oh, wow, that's really cool. She's one smart cookie, <laughs> I'll tell you. You're ahead of me on this. Okay. Uh, they, they pulverize the natural ore and reassemble it in a vacuum mm -hmm. with a resin like epoxy to hold it together. Yeah. It's still 85% the original stone. Mm -hmm. uh, but they've broken the molecular structure so that now it's not rock. Yeah. You can cut it and file it, and it's kind of got the hardness and brittleness like bone mm -hmm. or ivory. Oh, very and, interesting. And, you know, you can see this. I don't know how people can see at home. There's a few all different flavors, you know, I call them. Different stones, different colors. Uh, for example, um, this is clear turquoise that I'm often using for the sky. Yeah, so that's real turquoise. That's real turquoise. Um, or... or um, Lapis, lapis lazuli, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You can see little bits inside. Yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, so it was Larry Seifel mm -hmm. who saw a bit of the green malachite. He got a little piece. He said, you know, I found this at a craft sh show, and they were just sitting there. This might make interesting inlay, mm -hmm. you know? So I found out where, that a knife supplier would, would sell it mm -hmm. and would cut it for you, whatever science you need, or that's, that's how they do it. And uh, I used it on a guitar I made for Larry, and that's the first time it was used on guitar. Oh. And now so many people are using it because once you see it, your yeah. color palette has quadrupled in yeah. a minute. It's incredible. And different textures and different grains, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, different grain yeah. patterns. They figure out how they can join it. Like this is onyx, mm -hmm. but with grain, and you can get it with different 
grains or blended with other stones so it looks different. Oh, yeah. You know, whatever texture you need or color that fits the subject. Mm -hmm. In addition to all the different flavors of shell, I use at least, there's at least nine different species of shell that I'll yeah. use. And the legal ivory, I was showing you earlier, mm -hmm. walrus ivory, yeah. uh, that's legal. But anyway, it was Larry and Chuck that invented the laminate. Sorry, I'm pointing at where I put the laminate <laughs> yeah. down for people in the camera. And, uh, and then, you know, and it was Chuck again who came up with this concept, mm -hmm. and Larry who turned me on to recon stone. So those two guys, I'll tell yeah. you, hugely influential. And now the people, Mazecraft in, where are they? Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I buy it. Okay. They're this knife supplier, knife material building supply. So if you go to a craft show and you see a handmade knife and the, the, the handle is beautiful turquoise, that's recon. Okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and who knew? You know, they've been using this so that it's workable now. Yeah. And yet it's still the stone. Yeah. So that means I can get colors on the fretboard, whereas I used to have to use harder maples and I'd stain them. Mm -hmm. A wood that would take a stain, but it's still not as hard as the ebony. And yeah. I'm thinking of wear. At least shell and stone is going to withstand the wear at least as good as the ebony. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you're thinking practical side too. Mm -hmm. The other reason I like about the recon stone is it's still technically the natural material. Yeah, that's true. They've just broken its structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. it's, it's not something that you need to worry about overfishing or, or like losing species. It's, it's yeah, just stone. Yeah, and yeah. It, but yeah, it still has that yeah. natural element, those natural colors that occur in nature. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of that, even the abalone that we use in the guitar world, it's actually not the abalone that's controlled. Yeah, I, I just learned that there are different species. Oh, yeah, yeah. It. And the one that's literally on the CITES list is not the one we generally no. use. Yeah. However, customs people... They don't always know. They don't know that. <laughs> They'll just get worried. You know? I, I read the Fretboard Journal article, and I, I, I was like, oh, man, th there's a lot to worry about here, guys. Yeah, yeah. And you just... Our worry is customs people think, oh, God... There was something about this, you know. Uh, yeah, we're supposed to control this. Back oh, of their mind. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't want a letter in my file. I better just send it to Fish yeah, and Wildlife, it so it's not my problem. <laughs> you know, that's our worry. Yeah. You know. Yeah. On a similar sort of note to the um, to using alternative materials, um, but going more to tone woods, I know we, mm -hmm. you kind of mentioned earlier that you've been gravitating towards ebony sort of as yeah. an alternative to Brazilian and um, what are your reasons for going towards ebony? Yeah, um, really it's just the sound, Yeah, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, it's all workable yeah. um, and, and they're beautiful to look at, many mm -hmm. of the species, you know, there are quite a variety of things called exotic ebonies these mm -hmm. days. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really uh, looking for alternate materials that will sound good mm -hmm. and you're right, I, I've still got a bit of Brazilian but it's it, the last few sets are committed and I haven't bought any new stuff for a while mm -hmm. uh, actually even the stuff that I do see if you're willing to pay what people are charging it's stuff that to me it, we would have called packing material in the early yeah. days it's technically Brazilian, but it's, ugh, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, might as well use something else. Yeah, exactly. And really, the thing, the thing people need to understand, when guitar makers were in, you know, in the uh, 18th and 19th century, were building guitars using the soft sycamore, the flamed maple, European flamed maple, mm -hmm. that was used in the boat instrument world. They were making guitars out of them, like even Stradivarius. There's at least five guitars in existence of Strad, uh -huh. from Strad, yeah. And they're all made with the flamed maple, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what people are using. And then they thought, why don't we try something that looks prettier? 
and Brazilian rosewood. It was the rosewood of commerce for centuries because it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And this was the lumber that was available in their corner lumber yard. It was being used for everything. Desks, uh, furniture bases, railroad ties. Oh, Honest gosh. to God, in South Africa, there are railroads and all the ties are Brazilian rosewood. Don't, don't even worry about it because they're so soaked of creosote now, they're useless. Wow. But it was ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, because there was lots of it, big trees, and it was gorgeous wood. Mm -hmm. Until, and that's its problem, it was just overused yeah. and not replanted. It's, yeah. not, it's not the modern climate change. No. Or, or even, you know, uh, rainforest clearing. That's adding to the problem now. Yeah, but, but that it's, wasn't it its original so problem. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, so they just picked this wood and they happened to land on something that had a specific gravity that did respond exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. And it surprised them. So they stuck with it because this was so much better than what they were using. <laughs> so it became the standard yeah. just because it was the most convenient and it was pretty stuff. Mm -hmm. Not because somebody tried every wood they could, and this one did it better than anything else. Mm -hmm. So people have to understand that's where it came from, and it was the standard wood until they couldn't get it anymore. Yeah. And then they went to the next rosewood that was as close in specific gravity, and that is the summation of all its properties, its weight and strength to mass ratios and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Indian rosewood was the closest and plentiful because it was the standard tree of shading the tea plantations in India. Mm -hmm. So they were constantly growing it and relatively fast growing. Anyway, it was great. That was the solution. And that's when the world went to Indian rosewood. But it's Brazilian only because they stumbled on it and it yeah. sounded good. It doesn't mean it's the best wood yeah, out there. Ex yeah, exactly. But people think it is because it was the standard and that's what they knew. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, excuse me, but I'm gonna put say I'm gonna go on record here, you know? <laughs> Pre-war Martins were particularly good, or, or in between the wars, because they were building them too light. Yeah. And they found they were being swamped with repairs. Mm -hmm. So in the early 50s, they, started, they started going heavier. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and that's why people want them, because they were built so light they were more responsive, but mm -hmm. also delicate. Yeah. Um, and then during the war, when they were, they, they were having problems getting Sitka spruce, well, they started looking to local lumberyards. So, oh, well, there's this, in the Adirondacks, there's a species, why don't we try that stuff? Mm -hmm. And so they were using it, but again, they were still building the guitars lightly. It's not mm -hmm. that Adirondack spruce made better guitars. It was the only spruce they could get, and they were putting on guitars that they were building so light they were extra responsive. Yeah. But what happens nowadays, people think, Adirondack equals better guitars, yep. so people want it. Mm -hmm. And most of the stuff I see, I've got a few sets, and I did use one set recently, but only if I'm nagged into it. <laughs> said mostly the Adirondack I've seen looks like crap. Looks like stuff that you'd never, you wouldn't put on a cheap guitar, you know? And yet people use it because it's technically Adirondack. Yeah. So there's all these things around guitars mm -hmm. that, it, it doesn't mean they're going to make better guitars. Yeah, absolutely. You know? It just means it seems to be an association. Mm -hmm. So people take two and two, and it goes to five, yeah. and they want five. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to think about that. And the way I tell people, you know, I used to use German spruce exclusively for the first decade of my building. Mm -hmm. Until I found I was having trouble getting as good a quality as I wanted, even mm -hmm. buying from Europe and everything. 
And I still use it occasionally, people nag, but then I found I could get higher quality sick yeah. easier. And I loved, I could get good quality. I liked that it wasn't as white. It was a mm -hmm. little, little muted tone color, a little beigeier. Mm -hmm. And I loved the sound. Yeah. So it became my standard, and to this day, I can get superb quality stuff. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, I buy from someone who supplies guitar tops to a lot of the manufacturers from, from Washington State. Right? Mm -hmm. And I've been there, and I know that they have a little stack in the office. Even though they, they cut a thousand tops uh, a week at least, maybe even a day, mm -hmm. they, they go and search for blowdowns in the rainforest mm -hmm. and bring out the chunks, and they cut just like all kinds of people buy from them, you know. Mm -hmm. Taylor, Larry, everybody's buying from them. Um, but they set aside the most supreme, beautiful tops in the office, and they have a little stack. And I know about that stack, and I buy from that stack. <laughs> Just that I, one stack? And, and I pay twice the price, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And even out of that, 20% I don't use. Because wow. I don't feel it's quite up to scratch. And I'll sell it to an amateur builder or save it for parts or something. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how picky I am, mm -hmm. but I'm getting yeah. beautiful stuff. And I'm yeah. talking about per, you know, as split, you know, properly no runoff, you know, as well as can be done, quartered, color, you know, grain. I don't like grain super tight. Mm -hmm. I don't like it too wide. Yeah. You know, like everybody else, we've all got our flavors yeah. and know Good what preferences. works on our guitars. Yeah. But the yes. other thing people have to understand is that one rule that works for you may not apply to the same degree to the next builder. Yeah. You, you can't say, oh, when you put a cedar top on, this is what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. You might, but it could be different from this builder to that builder. So you have to take it with a grain of salt and talk to the, each builder. What happens when you use that wood? Mm -hmm. Or what have you noticed? You know? yeah. And so I tell people, you know, remember all these magazines, they've got to fill up their editorial content. Yep. So there's going to be another article about woods or this or that <laughs> or set up on guitars, you know? Yeah, I feel like the tone wood conversation is so inter interesting to me right now because like first getting really immersed into this whole world it's you know okay i gotta try to like learn all these woods and learn the general characteristics to when people ask i have some sort of like quick and easy answer but the more i talk to you guys the more i realize there is no quick and easy answer yeah. there are generalities yeah. and i i don't want like tnag to be contributing to the sort of like fetishization of yeah. well i must have yeah. this tone one because like, n no like ask the luthier tell the luthier what you want musically and then yeah. see what they think is the best option, see what they have that they think is the best option that's gonna work for your particular yeah. taste. Because, yeah, there, there's so much variation. There is, I mean, that's wise advice, and I, yeah, say that to people as often <laughs> as you can, for sure. Yeah. But I also understand in this day and age, because people are seeing use of all kinds of exotic woods, mm -hmm. and, you know, incredible looking guitars all over the place so they're oh boy yeah yeah maybe i could get some of that the brain wow. lights up. <laughs> yeah yeah so they're looking at all kinds of stuff you know mm -hmm. yeah, my own guitar that i played that i've had since 2004 mm -hmm. the last one i made for myself uh just indian yeah. sitka top that wasn't even anything special mm -hmm. it's a, probably a top that i wouldn't use for one of mm -hmm. my orders yeah because it had a little flaw or something but use it yeah i love that guitar oh. sounds fantastic no, I've been playing it for you know a bunch yeah, of years. It's, it's 18 years old, and boy, you know I'm, I've been warming up for these gigs that are coming up in a couple of weeks, and just strumming on it, I'm going, whoa, boy, do I love the sound of this guitar. Aww. And it's just Indian rosewood and nothing special. Yeah. And I wanted to do that because I don't, 
sometimes it's the only guitar finished one I have to show because mm -hmm. when they're made, they're gone. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Right. You know, and somebody visiting me and you know, well, you know, if you come this week, you might catch this guitar. I'm supposed to be shipping on Tuesday, but if you come on Monday, so they could try something. But normally, it's the only one. So I don't want them to see only Brazilian rosewood right. and European spruce because that's what they're going to want. Yeah. And I don't want them to want that. Yeah, you kind of have to like set that precedent yourself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, but um, it just shows you, you mm -hmm. know? Now, that doesn't mean, normally I'm comparing the sound right out of the gate, because that's how we hear every guitar. Yeah. At exactly the same moment of first being strung, mm -hmm. first being vibrated. And so that's my comparison point. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to hear uh, these days, like Brazilian, many of the, the ebonies and, and a few other species, um, wenge, mm -hmm. great sound yeah. from wenge. I made a steel string that blew me away, and now I've got an order of a classical for it, mm. too, because I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what that does. Not exciting to look at, yeah, but, but it, boy, does it vibrate well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or Ziracote. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's another favorite that mm -hmm. sounds good. Uh, a little anecdote about that. Mm -hmm. First time I was using the wood, I was making a guitar uh, that was going to belong to one of our major national museums. Mm -hmm. yeah. When I got a craft award, a national craft award years ago, um, part of the deal, uh, you got some money, mm -hmm. and you got a commission that it belonged to the collection of one of our major museums. Oh, cool. You know, no matter what discipline you were in, mm -hmm. you know, with glass blowing, pottery, whatever it is, they would own one of your pieces. So I thought, well, let's do something special. So I'm, I'm, I made it out of zero cote. Mm -hmm. And when it's just the frame, you know, there's one point where I clamp it in this, mm -hmm. and, and the reinforcement blocks I put in for the bevels. Mm -hmm. You know, I glue them in square so I can clamp well, but then I bevel it down. I remove it. I bevel it on the inside so it's like that, mm -hmm. and now it's square. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Hello, camera. <laughs> so I bevel it on the inside, and then where it's square on the outside, I then cut into it so it's beveled from the outside. Okay. And you get this thing that's only a half a centimeter thick, mm -hmm. but it follows your curve. Mm -hmm. All right? So I grind it down to do it, and I clamp it in this clamp here, and I'm kind of leaning in the frame and grinding away at it, and the phone rings. I go over to the phone, pick it up, dial tone, there's nobody there. That's weird, I guess I hung up. Mm -hmm. Go back to my grinding, I hear the ringing. Ah. Back to the phone, you can see where it's going, right? Nobody there. <laughs> and then I realize the frame was ringing from the vibration wow. of my tool. Uh -huh. That's how responsive it was to vibration. That's crazy. Uh, literally, because I'm like that. My, if you imagine the guitar frame and I'm going like this and my head is right in the frame, and literally I mean there's no back and top on mm -hmm. it yet, just so you know, people understand. I've never experienced anything like that. I remember standing there basically in awe. Mm -hmm. Holy, what on earth? Wow. So I became a fan of Zero Cote ever since I yeah. used it. So that's been an alternate mm -hmm. for a long time, especially when people are talking about Brazilian or something. Well, no, let me talk you into something that's not going to give you a customs hassle. Yeah. You know? But still give you all the tone yeah. that you want. Kind of digging more into the ergonomic features. Um, mm. You came up with the you, you helped develop the bevel. Well, you, I mean, you did essentially. You, you did it sort of with while working with a client. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. And same thing with the sound port. Um, yeah. That was another client feedback thing. Is there anything yes. else that, um, do you, that you, that you do um, in terms of the construction that is unusual or kind of unique to you? Um, uh, I think so. Um, let's see. Well, first of all, my shapes are my own. They're not mm -hmm. copies of Martin shapes like mm -hmm. many people do or Gibson shapes and stuff. They're my own. Um, the rosette, um, putting, 
continuing sort of a semi-classical approach with the mosaic in the center, but I add abalone shell, mm -hmm. you know, to make it a little more steel stringy, but still, I like the rosette. I love the idea of it there, mm -hmm. um, even on steel strings, but I really got that from John, John Hervey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he started as a classical builder and a classical player. That's all he knew. Mm -hmm. And Edgar Munch's teacher is only a classical builder. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, <laughs> sidebar, I walked into John's shop the first time I came, and he was putting uh, position dots on the fretboard of his first steel string, and he had three of them in the wrong position <laughs> because he was sticking them where he thought they looked pretty. <laughs> he didn't know they were to mark certain positions because he he'd never even heard of Martin. Yeah. Wow, that's He'd never crazy. heard of Martin guitars. No, he was just a classical player, yeah. studying classical guitar, yeah. not being able to afford a good one, and wanted a good one. Mm. And he accidentally stumbled across this maker who had been brought to Canada for five years to work under contract for a music store. Mm. And the guy said, well, if you're interested, come at night, I'll show you, you know, mm -hmm. after, your, after, your, after your work. And he did, and that got John hooked. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's where he's coming from. So there's that. Um, probably another thing I've been doing lately as an option is just an oil finish on the neck. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like I did for the 50th, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, and because there isn't the lacquer, there's no drag. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a process. Um, it's a version of what's done on boat instruments where mm -hmm. there's no finish on the center of the neck right. that you hold. And so you can squeeze for a bar cord. Mm-hmm. And nothing's going to hold you, but if you, you know, a full polish lacquer finish until you've got three, four, five years of wearing your sweat acids on it, there's going to be some grip yeah. if you squeeze tight and try and move. So you end up learning just to loosen your grip and you move. And, mm -hmm. But if you do an oil finish, it's like silk. Yeah. You can't. There's no drag. Mm -hmm. And I call it my fast neck. Yeah. And I'm, I'll do that on occasion. And one of those two that are up there is, is going to have it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's an option. I didn't invent that, mm -hmm. but I don't know of anybody else who's doing it regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, or another thing, uh, when I do you know, the inlay art, of course, for years I was doing on the headstock, was doing a full normal finish. Mm -hmm. But of course, then you immediately tighten the washers on the machine heads and the washer that's there, and you tighten the nut, and, and you're pressing on the finish, right. and you would get this little crease line around you know, or as as the the wood underneath expanded and contracted, but the shell and stone materials don't. Mm -hmm. So you would get this tiny little white line, which is a loss of adhesion mm -hmm. at that spot, and it would drive me nuts. You know, after all this time I spent on all this work, and now the finish is making it look crappy. <laughs> so how about this? Why don't I just do a bit of sealer, and that's it, and leave it matte. Mm -hmm. So that's all I do now. I do three coats of a vinyl sealer let it dry, and then I lightly scuff sand it, and then steel wool it. Mm -hmm. So it's matte, but it's protected. Yeah. And you can look, my guitar has it, and it's now 18 years old. There's no crease lines of any kind, and I've played folk festivals in the heat, you know, and traveled mm -hmm. in the winter with it, and it's moved. Now, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, so, and at first I thought, oh my God, will anybody be okay with this? It's so different, you know? <laughs> but I just did it and nobody even cared or noticed. Yeah. <laughs> Typical. Just um, made your so life there's, easier. There's things like that. Um, another thing uh, that I do that you can't see is I play with the top thicknesses. Mm. 
Now, you can see evidence, for example, not on that one as much, but on this one. You can see some of my plane mark from uh -huh. hand plane marks. Oh, yeah. Whereas this is, you're seeing, and sorry, you can't see it on screen, but I'm showing heavy sand marks from the thickness sander when I'm rough sanding it, because mm -hmm. I don't sand the top until filler has happened. Okay. And all the messy stages done on the back and sides, mm -hmm. then the last thing I do is sand the top. Mm -hmm. So you're still seeing evidence of me thicknessing, and there was more of it where I thinned around borders. So I do something, if you can stand a story yes. about it, where this comes from, there's a rule of thumb that was coming out of the classical guitar building thing, that the treble side um, you leave uh, thicker um, because of the, the higher the, the tighter vibrations, the mm -hmm. wavelengths, and the bass side you leave thinner mm -hmm. to be more flexible for the w bigger wavelengths. That's you know just the theory, mm -hmm. right? There's no no proof, <laughs> right? But that was the accepted wisdom. Uh, okay. So myself and Sergei de Young decided, let's test that out. Let's each make a pair of classicals, spruce top, cedar top, and you do spruce top, cedar top. And let's each do four, actually, two pairs each. Do two of the two different woods, thickness the way the traditional says, mm -hmm. and do the other two thickness precisely the opposite. And two makers doing it, two different woods, two different batches, mm -hmm. consistently. For both of us, every time we did exactly the opposite of accepted wisdom, the guitars sounded better. <laughs> every time. And like, no secrets, yeah. you know? And I have lectured about this to luthiers, I said, do it. Find out what works for your guitars, the way you build them, your body shape, your air volume, the way you brace, you know? But this is what works for me, and it worked for Serge. Yeah. You know, and so we kind of broke the mold, and to this day, I play with those sicknesses that haven't changed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, but nobody could see that. Yeah. You right. Know? And uh, and in th it brings back, you know, you can imagine, you know, this poor guitar player just doesn't know a lot, and he's standing in a music store, and that guitar is three hundred dollars, that one's three thousand, that one's thirty thousand. What's the difference? Yeah. They they all look like guitars to me, and you know, I don't know, you know. Now one may sound better, and they can judge it that way, but is it ten times better? Yeah. There's no such thing. Yeah. I explained to people, I said, to get good, you know, the distance from the floor up to where your belt is takes X amount of effort. Now, to get up from the thickness of your belt takes just as much effort again. Mm -hmm. And then to get the thickness of a finger above that in quality takes that much effort yet again because you're trying to pull more and more subtle response out of what's just a wooden box. Yeah. That's it. With some metal or plastic strings. That and is, that's, that's the best way to kind of conceptualize that idea. Like, yeah, yeah the whole $3,000 versus $30,000 guitar concept. Yeah. Like, it, it's, like, we, we'll try to explain to people, like, yes, the $30,000 guitar is better in some mm -hmm. ways. Will you be all? Will everybody be able to tell? Not necessarily. Is no, it ninety? No. It, is the ten thousand guitar ninety percent as good? Yeah, because yeah. it's that. Yeah, the, those last percentage points that take just as much. Yeah, it just takes so much effort. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, and the other thing I tell people is just the raw materials mm -hmm. for my guitars. You know, I'll spend two to three thousand. Yeah, just in the raw cost, mm -hmm. and sometimes I'm buying right from the people who cut the lumber. Mm -hmm. You know, and from the source country. 
and sometimes I'm buying with other builders and we're buying together. Mm -hmm. So you can't get it any cheaper. No. So it shows you if you know that's my starting point. I haven't even put any work in yet. Yeah. And I've spent two to three thousand dollars. Yeah. You know, at least. Never mind when I get into inlay and all the shell and everything, yeah. you know. I've got all this this old file cabinet that is holding up my bench. Mm -hmm. You know, half those drawers are filled with different shell species. Mm -hmm. You know, there's probably fifty thousand dollars worth of shell material oh, right there. Yeah. At least. At least, because I like to have lots. Yeah. So that when I'm doing something and I've got the picture of somebody in their arm and the and their wrist is right there, I'm gonna search for a piece of mother of pearl if I can, where the, the natural graining of it is taking a bend exactly where that hand would be, yeah. where the where the wrist would be. And I'll spread all my mother of pearl out on the bench and search for it and hold it up to the light and what's it doing on the bottom? And I want as much option as possible to mm -hmm. get as close to use the natural effects and uh, natural particulars mm -hmm. of the materials to enhance the three-dimensionality that I'm trying to create with yeah. all the engraving and the colors and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. Oh yeah, and a sidebar, when I was talking about the, the, the finish I do on the, on the headstock, mm -hmm. uh, that because there's a finish protecting it, I can also do what I call surface treatments, shading, Okay. With, with tints, mm -hmm. or if there's metals on there, I can use acid oxidizers to create, you know, different shadings to them, um, which you can't do on a fretboard yeah. because it's it's raw and your fingers will pull it off. Mm -hmm. So any shading has to be engraving techniques, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas I can mix both engraving and brushwork right. on a headstock because mm -hmm. you know, it's protected. Yeah, That's there's just there's just so much that you do that yeah, it's really incredible. What does your average day look like nowadays? Are you pretty much solely focused on building now that you don't have the record label or not, not running yeah, a camp or anything? Yeah, pretty much. I'm here six days a week. Yeah. Um, building two guitars at a time. That's right. You know, you yeah. So there's always a half a dozen in process, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm still coming here six days a week. And uh, I mean, there's still other some other things I'm involved in. Like even in this building, uh, we run it ourselves. There's no mm -hmm. management. Uh, it's technically a condo, but we act as if it's a co-op. Mm -hmm. So we all do the jobs, and mine is running the admin account. Mm -hmm. So I pay all the bills and send people monthly statements and, and deal with the accountant at the end of the year kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so I still do that. Um, but you're right, yeah, we've uh, um, National Folk Music Awards, that, that was my idea originally. My wife and I are the last of the founders who are still on the board until just recently. Okay. I've literally, like just weeks ago, finished the financial side. I was the financial officer of it, and I've now handed everything over, mm. even though I left the board uh, six months ago. But I told them I'll finish all the financials for the past year. Mm. Now I'm going to focus on my writing. Right. As I've said, you know, yeah. I'm not doing songwriting like I used to, but that's fine. That was my creative outlet for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my first song at age 14. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, I'm sure it was horrible. <laughs> I don't remember it, but, you know, it got me into the groove of yeah. doing it and figuring out how to do it. Yeah. Um, doing that problem solving. Yeah. You know, and like anything else, you do it more and you get better at mm -hmm. it, right? You figure out what's wrong. But um, so now it's the fiction writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there'll be another inlay book. There's already been two. Mm -hmm. There's certainly been tons of impressive work that's happened since the last book, mm -hmm. Grand, Com Grand Complications. <laughs> you know, 50 stories and 50 guitars. You want it in your home. Yes. Um, the, the infomercial and, portion. Yeah, and tell Teenag to stock them in the store. That would really help. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm being bad. Um, but I don't know 
people are asking, is there going to be another book? The one grand complication is that was four years of work. I don't mean of inlay. That was 13 years of inlays that I selected. Writing. <laughs> but writing, planning it, doing all the, all the supplementary photos. Mm -hmm. And we shot tons of stuff. You know, only maybe 40% of it made it in the book. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was four years of work, you know, and then to write it. Basically, yeah. 50 essays. Wow. And the first one is a long one. Mm -hmm. um, and to be different each time, but also... Cohesive. Yeah, cohesive, but also try my best to really show what was transpiring in my head. Mm. The whole point was to go behind the curtain on the creative process mm -hmm. as much as it's humanly possible to convey. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you describe to somebody that from one fraction of a second to the next, a, a, a thought, a, a solution, or a thought, or an idea hits your brain? Where did it come from? Yeah. You know, what was going on subconsciously that was putting it together? Your brain was working on it, and it shot this up, you know, into a synapse that you could recognize. And, oh, yeah, that's how it could work. So I would try and describe, okay, what were the things I was looking at and thinking at the time that then linked me to this, which linked me, my brain to that, which got me to this? Mm -hmm. And, and because I save all my notes and preparatory stuff in files, I would open up the file and there's all my handwritten notes from while I was on the phone with the person. Mm -hmm. And then I would reread them and honest to God, their voice came back to me. Mm. Thank God. Yeah. So yeah, there was a little bit of artistic you know, reconstruction. You, you imagine, you know, remembered conversations and mm -hmm. things like that, but in general, no. So I could take, tell people that was the point. It's not just to show off the work, but how did you get to this point? Mm -hmm. When somebody just said, oh, do peace. Mm -hmm. well, what do you mean? Yeah. You know, what, what's important about peace for you? Or, or as I describe in the intro in that book, literally I've gotten from some people, it feels like a novel's worth of concepts. And mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, think of this as a film script. We have to focus on the central narrative. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, so what's the most important thing here to you? You know, and, and then why? And, and literally, it, I do feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, their psychiatrist or something, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm getting them to tell me what's important to them in yeah. their lives. And, and then we narrow down a theme and what aspect of the theme is important to them. Mm -hmm. But what a, what a neat process. Yeah. You know, I, I love it. Yeah. Really. I think anybody who's interested in you is going to be interested in inlay, but that that the creative process aspect of it applies yeah. to anything you could possibly do. Oh, sure. So. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. You mm -hmm. know, where ideas pop into your head. Where do they come from? Yeah. What was your subconscious doing when you were busy doing something else? Yeah. You know, it was, it was absorbing things and putting things together. And hmm, <laughs> next thing you know, there's a thought. There's an idea. Yeah. <clears throat> On the, the next novel that I'm work that I'm researching, uh, brain function comes into it mm -hmm. and I have been reading the latest on what's understood about the brain and there's mm -hmm. this woman scientist sorry I've forgotten her name but I've read two of her books now and of course she was dismissed at the beginning but now there it's showing that she really? was, she understood basically there is no such thing as an emotional center of the brain or this center of the brain mm -hmm. there are different regions which yeah. focus on different things but most tasks that the brain does, it spreads throughout the yeah. entire brain. Never mind parts of the body. Yeah. Right? It's, it's directly connected to. Mm -hmm. um, not just to function you, but even emotion. Yeah. And things like that. But she's showing how what the brain does constantly is predict 
mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. Yeah. That's how the brain functions. Whether you realize it, it happens in such minute fractions of seconds, you can't even perceive it. Mm-hmm. But that's all it does all the time, is predict and try and look at what's in front of it or what it's absorbed through the senses and, and, and put a story together. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating stuff. Yeah. And that's because this, my main character is going to be born with some unusual abilities. Mm. And I want, want it to sound plausible, even if it's fantastical, mm-hmm. uh, that it could happen. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand brain function. Wow. Yeah. And I, but just like with inlays, uh, you know, I get all these topics. I have to learn about things. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'm being paid to do it, to learn new things. You know, I, even, even this one for Simon is to learn, you know, where was she from? This indigenous woman she, mm-hmm. he wanted to honor, who was her, his friend. And, and then I learned about all the honors she received in her life for, for her social activ- activism. Mm-hmm. And, but also, what part of the world did she come from? Mm-hmm. And what culture was happening there? And so even when I depicted some portion of it with indigenous style of art, it had to be the style of the specific nations right. she's connected with, you know? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Yeah. I was learning all kinds of... I'd never heard of her, yeah. but holy mackerel, look at all stuff. She's even been honored with totem poles and stuff, <laughs> as well as by her, the state she operated in gave her a, 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 an award, wow. you know, that honored her for her work. Mm-hmm. So I can see why she was a, just a great human being. I thought, mm-hmm. I never heard of her, but look what I'm getting to learn. Yeah. I, I just... You know, so I, there's so many ways, you yeah. know, that I just feel so lucky, mm-hmm. and uh, and being able to make a living at it. And you know, even from the start, I hadn't even bought my first tool, but people knew I was leaving John mm-hmm. and going to work on my own. I had three orders before I had gone to the hardware store and bought my first saw. I didn't even have a shop yet, <laughs> and I had orders, and I have never had to do the typical trajectory for builders, not 100%, but so many, certainly of my era, you do some repair work and Mm -hmm. some restoration work, and you build one on the side, and you hang it up in a music store somewhere on consignment so people can actually see it and try it, Mm -hmm. and see that, oh, it's going to probably hold up, and this sounds good, it plays okay, like (laughs) a professional, you know, and then people get to know you, and then you get a few orders, and then you do less repairs, Mm -hmm. and eventually you can become a builder, and you you just don't do repair work anymore. Never had to do it. Yeah, you just Never. went straight. I've had orders always. Mm-hmm. Always a waiting list. And I, 51 years of it, you know? And now my orders go like at four and a half years at least. Wow. The moment. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to say lucky because you've done so much work to achieve all that. I know. You have to feed it, but luck is part of it too. Mm-hmm. It is, but the willingness to take advantage of the situations right. that luck has thrown your way, mm-hmm. as well as then having the chops that maintain it once, once right. you're there. Yeah, you do need both. Yeah. Well, you have been so generous with your time. I so appreciate you sharing all these stories with me and, and with us. And yeah. you've, been, uh, like, you've been such a fun person to talk to and, and to learn from. So uh, to wrap up, I want to try a new thing where I do some rapid-fire questions. Just, okay. just get a little tidbits about, okay. about folks. So, all right. Um, number one, what is your go-to music, album, or podcast that you listen to while you work? Oh, oh, gee. No. All right. That... I wish I could do a quick answer, but it's hard because it's it's the latest 
albums I got that mm -hmm. are turning my crank. Yeah. You know, and at the moment it is Peggy Seeger's latest album, great songs on it. Um, Ferris and Jason Romero. Oh, love them. Love them. Mm -hmm. And also the new Alison Krauss and Robert mm -hmm. Plant records. Mm -hmm. Boy, do I love them. Both yeah. their first one together and the latest one. My wife got it for me. I mm. uh, adore them. Mm -hmm. So that and a new double album from Kathy Fink, Marcy Marcer, and Tom Paxton. Okay. And Kathy and Marcy produced it. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been producing Tom for a while. I don't know if you know them. Mm -hmm. Brilliant performers, multi-Grammy winners as producers, as children's performers, but as adult performers. Wow. Old friends, mm -hmm. old and dear friends. I know Tom, too. Um, but anyway, their new double album is fantastic. All the records, the songs are so relevant and appealing. The all those albums I just mentioned, those mm -hmm. are my current rotation. Nice. Sorry, it wasn't a quick answer. No, that's great. My, my second question was going to be a favorite album that you've discovered this year. So we got a you got two that for, two for there. There you go. Yeah. So what fuels your day? Coffee or tea? I think I know. Coffee. 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 Yeah. <laughs> In the you? morning. Yeah. yeah. I, I I need it, but I can't have it past June past noon or so. Yeah. It affects my sleep. Yeah. Are you, do you have a roaster nearby that you particularly like to, to buy from? Oh, um, as a matter of fact, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I get it from a um, company that uh, buys their, their beans from a concern that supports small growers around nice. the world. Great. Yeah, only small growers. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I, I buy, you know, like... It send me another 10 pounds, you know, in half-pound mm -hmm. bags, and that'll do me, and that's what I do. Nice. Yeah. What is a hobby or interest that people might not know about you, or that you have that people might not know? Jigsaw puzzles. I love jigsaw puzzles, too. Yeah. They're so much fun. Yep. <laughs> I'll tell you, to me, they're such a treat because for an hour a night, mm -hmm. I can't think of anything else. Yeah. I find it so relaxing, and yet mm -hmm. I enjoy the challenge. It's a bit like my inlay stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when I cut inlay, you know, all those parts were separate. Mm -hmm. You know, just all cut one at a time, sitting on, and yeah. then I assemble it. Mm -hmm. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle mm -hmm. that I'm putting together and, you know, adjusting a few pieces when, you know, I get the fit better or it's yeah. too tight or something. But yeah, so jigsaw puzzles. Nice. There you go. And. Asking for myself, what's your favorite restaurant in Toronto? Our favorite is a Portuguese restaurant called Adega. Mm. And uh, amazingly good food. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, we don't eat a lot of seafood, but when they do fish, it tastes better than anything we've ever had in our lives. Yeah. But it's also the environment. Mm -hmm. Friendly, welcoming, unpretentious, but excellent food. Mm. So that was always one of our three top favorites. And our number three favorite also went under in the, in, it's one down in the theater district mm -hmm. that we'd always eat at when we were going to theater or anything nearby or mm -hmm. concerts in the main concert hall. It's all down in that district. It's our favorite one in that strip and they just, that hurt them so badly. Yeah. It, was the, it was the pandemic. But, but now we just got to find some new favorites. Yeah. You know? Uh, but there's a lot of restaurants in Toronto, you mm -hmm. know, and, yeah. and of all kinds. Mm -hmm. That's one neat thing about Toronto that even the United Nations has declared it one of the most culturally diverse cities on the planet. Yeah. 
because there's people from everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they have their own commercial sections. You want Little Portugal, I Little know. Italy. I looked at the map and I was three like, different, Three different oh Chinatowns, yeah. uh, Koreatown, um, um, Vietnamese, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, whatever. Yeah, I was like, how am I going to choose yeah. where to eat? Indian, the <laughs> Indian food, you know, and oh. they have a main area and more than one. You know, Greek, you know, yeah. our home is, in, is mm -hmm. near Greek, in the Greek area. Uh, but fantastic Greek food, like, you know, Anyway, yeah. it's it's just a real pleasure. I mean, we're we're downtown. We're mm -hmm. in the core people. We're mm -hmm. not suburban types, and we live in town and we take advantage of it. We yeah. go to theater. We go to concerts. We go to films. We go to the museums. We eat in the restaurants, mm -hmm. and that's what we enjoy. Yeah, you know, participating in life. And I find enjoying all the arts is what inspires my own creativity. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know? I can't tell you how many. Good thoughts, good ideas have occurred to me when we're sitting at the symphony or we're watching yeah. a songwriter we love playing and there's something about their songs that sparks something and, you know, huh, you find, yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah. That people who stay only focused can only go so far. Mm -hmm. I really, I feel that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's a 100% rule, but it feels appropriate to me that mm -hmm. when you're open to other arts, other things in the world, mm -hmm your own creative output is going to be richer and more dimensional yeah. because of it. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's next for you? Are you going to be at Woodstock or any of the shows later on this year? Uh, not the shows this year, no. no. Um, partly out of COVID, I'm not, yeah. I'm not attending any group events mm -hmm. of any kind. Um, partly that. But even for me, well, do I need shows? You know, yeah. I'm so, You're, much work. <laughs> I'm so swamped with work, you know? But, but if I was, I love Woodstock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I used to go down to Healdsburg a couple times when it was happening mm -hmm. in California. And, uh, boy, that's interesting. You know, uh, the first Healdsburg I did was early on. Mm -hmm. where there were maybe 25 builders there. Mm -hmm. That's it. The last time I did Healdsburg, maybe the year before it stopped, there were 175 builders. Whoa. And they had to shut the registration list down because they were out of space. That's crazy. They had no more room for anybody else. That's what's been happening to the field that we've, those of us who've yeah. been around as long have seen. And of course, the suppliers, Luthiers Mercantile, Stumac, all these, you know, as people were, more people were building, then the suppliers are making more tools and this and that, mm -hmm. and that makes it easier for people to get into the trade. And it yeah. just, they kept feeding each other until now there's this, we really, really, truly are still in this golden age of handmade yeah. guitars. I think, yeah, it really is. We are so far, we're pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. And what's neat about guitar is it's, a, it's an instrument that hadn't finished evolving. Yeah. Like violins, mm -hmm. you know? Violin makers, contemporary builders, they're always competing with dead people. Mm -hmm. And they're having to trying to reproduce what was done before. Yeah. Whereas we all have the chance to push it mm -hmm. farther, tonally, physically, all those things, yeah. right? Because um, it hasn't finished yet, and that makes it a little more exciting. Because we know the carrot is always dangling out <laughs> there, just out of reach. But we're going to keep trying to get there, because <laughs> that's half the fun. Yeah. See what we can do this time. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're all like that. Amateur builders and full-time builders are like, mm -hmm. we're always excited when it's the day to string it up. <laughs> and we're going to hear what this baby's going to do. You know, right? Mm -hmm. And I bring it up to tension, and I strum it a few times without playing anything, just to get it vibrating. Mm -hmm. And then I take it over to my office, turn off the ceiling fan, shut the door, and play. Yeah. And, <sighs> not only that, 
but of course seeing a performer mm-hmm. play your guitar and be inspired mm-hmm. and make great music that's inspiring you and turning you on mm-hmm. that to have that dimension to a physical thing you created it takes it so far beyond craft it really is in its own category mm-hmm. sitting smack in between craft and art mm-hmm. in its yeah. own world and it's really we're making a tool but it's a tool as the result of our creativity mm-hmm. for someone else's creativity yeah it just it's a beautiful concept it really sort of circle of, of constant creation yeah yeah it really is and so it's a, it's a special field yeah yeah that is such a good note to end on. Okay. <laughs> such a high, such a high one. So you yeah. are going to have an editing headache. Oh no, I don't think this will be fun to listen back to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. While we don't currently have any Laskins available, either new or pre-owned, you can always check out Past Media to get yourself inspired to jump on his four to five year waiting list. This will be the final episode of season three of Talking Guitar, and if you've made it this far, know that I appreciate you so much for coming along with me for these luthier chats, and that I hope that you've learned as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Mm